Hello and welcome to the back page, a video games podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts. I'm joined by Matthew Castle. Hello, Matthew. What have you been playing lately? Uh, I've been playing Dark Side Detective. Have you played this? I have. Yes, very nice point and click adventure with kind of like a British humour, but not in an irritating way. I'm yeah, uh, yeah. It's it, good. It's great. Yeah, it's great because the sequel came out, and I realised I hadn't played the first. And some people said. Oh, you should really play the first before playing the sequel. Um, so I played through that, and I'm now playing through the sequel. And it's fantastic. I love it. It's like the antidote to irritating point-and-click games. It's really good. Yeah, I, th- I would say like it's a really uh, one of the best like modern, sort of easy-to-play versions of that old point-and-click style. Um, yeah. With genuinely that- good characters, even though they don't have faces, you know. Yeah, does everything you want from the genre, lets you combine ridiculous objects, has some funny characters, makes the the correct decision and the right distinction between like warmly amusing dialogue and like horrible snark, which is often the problem of point and click games. Mm. I find them quite kind of wearying in terms of you know, everything has to be a joke, so you just end up with this really sort of smarmy protagonist, but not the case here. Very well judged, excellent. Yeah, it's got a slightly Dirk Gently esque vibe to it. Um, yeah, but like, yeah, it's uh, like you say, not smarmy and uh, a good foil in the Officer Dooley. Um, mm, good characters. Yeah, I, I, I rate it. It's yeah. it's excellent. What about you? What have you been up to? Um, I uh, have been playing Yakuza Kiwami still. I'll be honest. Oh, um, nice. And I'm also on. I'm currently with my heist crew in GTA Online on the final heist that we've never done before, which is the Diamond Casino heist. We've um, we finished the Doomsday Heist, which would, was hanging over us for over three years. We um, had a go at it in 2017, <laughs> and then we like came back and conquered it uh, last month. And it felt pretty good to do that, because the difficulty is so wonky in it. We basically needed to level up and come back with like loads of more silly weapons. So right. as soon as I turned up with my chain gun laser, it was like, okay, <laughs> right, now I've finally got a chance of destroying these like invisibility dudes who turn up and kill you out of nowhere. So... um we, we were almost out of content now, so we have to play something else, basically. But, uh, oh, that's yeah. a shame. So, Matthew, we're back to one of our best games of X year episodes. And to the people listening to this podcast, we identified this chatting this week about you know our overall plans for the podcast going forwards. And we've realized we have like a bunch of different types of list feature <laughs> that kind of like yeah. form the backbone of the podcast and um, make the most of the fact that me and Matthew are very much kind of like generalists. So Matthew has a few more specialties than me, I would say. But in this episode, we're going to do the best games of 2008. Uh, if you're listening to this and you're new to the podcast, you might not know that we've done the best games of 2007 and 2006. So if you go back and listen to those, it will hopefully um, sequentially tell quite a good story of the um, the years as they go. We've picked these years because these are the years that we were working in games media. So we can tell a little bit of um, a mix of kind of anecdotes and then also... Uh, you know, uh, some bits and pieces on uh, what we were doing on the magazines, but also, you know, discussing the games themselves and how they related to us working professionally in in games media at the time. So they're um, they're fun episodes to do for sure. And um, Matthew, I was curious, what were you doing in 2008? So in 2008, I was uh, I moved in uh, to a flat with Rich Stanton <laughs> and had a, a very fun year living with Rich, who is, uh, you know, an unofficial member of this podcast. He gets mentioned a lot. I was on Endgamer. He was on Edge. So it was like a real games review. Like we were just always playing games and reviewing games and there was always something interesting happening. So it was it was, it was like a, a fun time um, personally. On the mag itself, 
2008 is actually a really weird year. Like, going back and looking at it, the big dramatic thing that happened at the start was that Greener, Mark Green, the editor of Endgamer, left and was replaced with Nick Ellis. Obviously, you know, this was my first job, so this was the first time this had happened. You know, Mark Green's someone like, you know, I'd grown up reading and, and you know, had a huge amount of respect for and, and you know, I, you know I, loved work, I really loved working for him. So it was a bit of a shock to the system that he kind of moved on because... That didn't really happen a huge amount in mags, you know. Like I thought, people. I just thought we'd be making this mag with this team forever. Um, so that was that was a bit of an upset. Nick came in. He was the editor of Official PlayStation Two at the time. Absolutely brilliant. I loved Nick to bits. Um, you know, as as nervous as I was about the kind of transition and kind of getting used to it and everything, you know, I ended up being like really good pals with Nick and. He was the editor on it for a couple of years. And that also coincided with 2008 is like a pretty horrible year for Nintendo, I think, because we come out of the excitement of like Twilight Princess, Galaxy, Metro Prime 3, and then we're suddenly into, it's a little bit Mario Kart, it's a little bit Smash Brothers Brawl, it's a little bit the disastrous E3 conference of 2008. It was a harder year for sure. Yeah, so I noted that in the... um the game selection that while there are some good games on Nintendo platforms from this year, uh, they're not generally games from Nintendo itself. So yeah, yeah, that was definitely something I kind of picked up on. Um, Yeah. It's um, I I will say that at a glance, this year is pretty amazing. So while the Nintendo stuff specifically, not so much, even at the time people were saying that is 2008, the best year in gaming ever. This was the subject of like a slate, dot com article i was reading this morning just kind of like positing that idea and talking about the different big hitters that came out this year so this was a genuinely hard list to put together based on my memories of this yeah, year it was hard li- so i actually I, I i still think 2007's better mm, i think 2007's got a few more sort of like undisputed 10 out of 10s than this year does um, that's the thing this year actually looking at it this year had a lot of games that i think i personally didn't get on as well with which is why i'm really interested to hear your top 10 because hmm. my top 10 actually is quite nintendo stuffed yeah um it's just quite weird nintendo stuff <laughs> <laughs> yeah so in this um this episode usually when we do these years i kind of like do quite a long what happened this year section and we will do that but it'll be a bit shorter this time because me and Matthew both have loads of like honourable mentions of games that we want to discuss in this episode to kind of um, feel like we're hitting everything that we were playing at the time. But first of all, I guess I'll talk about what I was doing in 2008. I was mm. made senior staff writer on Play, so I was promoted for the first time. That felt very validating. It would be next year I became like um, uh, basically a reviews editor and so um, have a bit more responsibility. But um, generally speaking, I, I was living the staff writer life this year. I went on loads and loads of trips, just like uh, an extraordinary amount, really. And, um, you know, saw places that I never thought I would ever see, uh, being a kind of like, uh, you know, uh, from a uh, sort of like a lower middle class family from um, Gosport in Hampshire. So, yeah, I this year I went to Metal Gear Solid 4. I went to the review event in Paris. I've talked about that trip before. Yeah. Um, the notorious um, Hideo Kojima gaffe where my phone goes off and I have to leave. <laughs> That was uh, embarrassing, but um, generally speaking, it was quite a it was a, a weird and extraordinary trip. I also went to um, a Call of Duty World at War event in uh, Santa Monica. In fact, we were like the world's first people to see Call of Duty World at War. I believe it hadn't oh, been right, announced well. yet. We kind of just knew it was the follow up game to 
you know, um, modern warfare. And I think because it was a Treyarch one, I don't think like it was as hard to get the access to it because I think people thought, oh well, you know, the Infinity Ward ones are the ones that people care about. Well, will there be as much interest in the kind of like also ran Treyarch ones? Obviously now Treyarch are the lead developers on the series, so yeah. Yeah, I always felt like through all these years, Treyarch, you just heard so much more about their games. They were so much more open to interviews. You know, Infinity War were just sort of locked down as a sort of elite unit. Yeah, they were very they were very open. That was a, a fun trip. Like um, Mark Lamy, the studio head, was sort of... Um, I think he had a ride in his electric car, if I recall, around Los Angeles. That was interesting. Um, but, um, they, yeah, they were very open. They showed us stuff like um, the sound designer showing us where he puts all the sources of sound at a single-player level and how it plays out and all that kind of granular stuff that I feel like you'd basically never get from um, a new Call of Duty game now. It was, um, Imagine your yeah. job being sitting in a little room and you've basically got a hundred different sound files of a man screaming to death because he's been burning from a flamethrower. <laughs> what, what a grim job that must be. You're like, is this Crispy Man 5.wav or <laughs> Crispy Man 6.wav? <laughs> yeah, that's quite a um, quite a contentious game in that respect. Um, yeah, it was, yeah it, it, was, it was a little bit using... Uh, flamethrowers on screaming japanese sort of kamikaze people it was it was pretty pretty full-on <laughs> it was yeah it's weird as well because it was obviously set in um world war Two, but it had the um same technology as modern warfare so it was a nice looking game for the time mm. um but um yeah but people this does mark the turnaround in people's perception of treyarch because they introduced their zombies mode um to call mm. of duty which i recall some cod purists being slightly sniffy about um, I recall there being some sniffiness towards this as a mode, but anyway, obviously it became incredibly popular and um, a staple of the games over the years. So, yeah, that was um, seeing that being the, the first people in the world to see that, and just knowing it was like you know, it was it was the next Call of Duty. It was set in World War Two, but it was it looked like modern warfare. I think that's kind of what I knew before going into it. So, um, yeah, I spent a bunch of days in Santa Monica seeing that. That was really fun. What else did I do? I went to Sega in Japan. That's where I did the disastrous Negoshi interview that I mentioned in a previous episode. <laughs> um, also saw that. I like that this year was just you going around, like, absolutely monstering interviews. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just, um, I don't know, I was like, I was probably slightly too young to be doing it still. I was, uh, you know, 19 and 20 this year. So it was. I was incredibly young and petulant and annoying. So uh, yeah. It's the Samuel Roberts Global Gaff Tour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh, should have my own shirts printed with um, <laughs> Amsterdam, Santa Monica, gaffing all over the world. Yeah, um, so that was um, that was good. We saw Valkyria Chronicles. That was one of those games where we didn't really know what it much about it, and then it suddenly comes out of nowhere, and you're like, "Oh, holy shit!" Sega's made like this really cool, um, sort of like almost XCOMy kind of like real time game. And um, mm. but we also saw Sonic Unleashed on that trip. But that was my only trip to Japan, so that was quite interesting to get. You know basically two or three days to just like ingest you know shibuya and shinjuku and a few other places oh, um, yeah. yokohama did you, did you do the old um trip to super potato in akihabara no didn't go to akihabara oh, and, um, okay yeah i'm not sure i'm not sure why i'm quite glad we did go to shinjuku though it was um because i got a, i feel like i had enough of a reference point to enjoy the yakuza game slightly more later on so yeah that was fun um and mm. shibuya as well ends up being um in, the world ends with you that comes out in this uh, this year ends up being um, a significant setting in that game so um mm. 
that was fun. And then um, finally, the oh, I know there was a few more actually. It really was a world tour. I went to wow, um, this is mate. What a year! Yeah, I went to uh, Lucasfilm in San Francisco, the Digital Letterman Center. It's not uh, Skywalker Ranch. It's like basically where Lucasfilm works. This giant campus on the uh, Presidio, which is a very nice, fancy area of um, San Francisco, somewhere near the um, Golden Gate Bridge. Just uh, beautiful. They had a, a Yoda statue outside. Star Wars fans have probably seen that Yoda statue um, doing the rounds before. And then loads and loads of props. We went on a tour and saw, like, I don't know, the um, Han Solo and Carbonite and the um, poster of that that dude from Ghostbusters 2, the painting. What's his name? I can't remember his name. Oh, Vigo the Carpathian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you see Chewbacca's legs? <laughs> <laughs> no, they had, like, one of the best props they have is um, they have, like, Jar Jar and Carbonite there. That was quite fun. Um, Wait, does that happen in the films? No, no, that was just a fun prop. Oh, it was just a made. prank. Yeah, basically, yeah. But um, that's a, that's a great tour to do, though. That's a, like an amazing um, trip to do. So that was for the um, Star Wars: The Force Unleashed, and then finally I went to um, Amsterdam to see Killzone, which uh, Killzone Two, which I talked about on a um, on a previous episode. So that's what I did this year, Matthew. It really was like um, jet setting, and then coming back to the office, finding a pile of promo copies on my desk. This might have actually been a better year than I thought it was at the time. Oh man, um, you see. Yeah. I remember this period because I, I did one trip in 2008. I went to San Francisco for like THQ's game day, mm-hmm. um, which was like a, a, a day they did every year, which actually a lot of the publishers used to do this. And, it you know, it has, they just, this just doesn't happen anymore, which is like basically like a mini E3 for one company in a fun place. Mm. So, you know, like Midway would take everyone to Vegas or something and then show them all of Midway's games. And this was, everyone goes to San Francisco to see, like, basically the whole slate of THQ, which for us was the blob, the um, the kind of rainbow-coloured sort of platformer, which I didn't really think amounted to a great deal. I also had a mortifying press demo of the blob um <laughs> with a like a marketing guy in the room and once and uh like a marketing guy who'd come it wasn't from future i don't think but he was he was like sitting in the in the thing with me and the guy talked about the blob which is about this gray lump who kind of absorbs colors to paint a world which is you know quite a unique little concept and i remember this marketing guy saying so basically what you're telling me here is that it's uh it's mario <laughs> at the end of the talk right. and me just wanting to sort of fold into myself out of embarrassment for him um, right yeah um and also we saw deadly creatures which was the um the hilarious game about a spider and a tarantula with voice acting from billy bob thornton and dennis hopper which is just one of the weirdest things that ever happened on Wii. I have n- I have never heard of this game. I know. <laughs> well, that's that's what's mad about Deadly Creatures. Because when you say it, you're, people are like, "Wait, Billy Bob Thornton, Dennis Hopper, they like voice the spider and a tarantula," and you're like, "No, no, they're the voices of like two blokes in the background of the game, who the spider and the tarantula like keep bumping into. The spider and the tarantula like aren't like anthropomorphized at all. They just." <laughs> right. They just walk around, but like the story of the game kind of plays out in the background, and it's about these two brothers who are like trying to dig up some gold or something. And I think you end up like, you know, stinging Billy Bob Thornton. <laughs> if this was an indie game, people would love the shit out of it. Yeah, but it, what this was like, 
THQ throwing like considerable money at a Wii exclusive. I think it was. I don't. It may have been on PS2 as well, which tended to happen. But um, yeah, it was, and it wasn't very good. It came out in 2009, but that's what I went there to see because everyone else was seeing Saints Row 2, which just looked absolutely hilarious. And I remember thinking, you know, oh man, I wish I wish I could be writing about that instead of the blob <laughs> and and uh, deadly creatures. And I think it was a a, a, t- a movie tie-in game for Wally. Um, which oh, dates right. it. One thing I do remember is like, you know, that was an amazing trip, but like my peers were going on so many trips. And I remember sitting in the office and hearing people be like, oh man, like I'd love a month where I could just stay at home. And I remember thinking, you motherfuckers, I'd love to be going on all <laughs> those trips. I was so jealous. The only time that I, I ever really complained is when I did. I did do GTA 4 review event and Metal Gear Solid 4 review event in, uh, within two weeks of each other um because i and because i had to write like i had to write like a feature on gta while i was at the metal gear event it was just like so so knackering um to do those back to back but i'm also aware that's a very privileged position to be in (laughs) and that actually like if someone told me now that um if your next two weeks are reviewing a brand new Metal Gear game and a GTA game, I'd be like, well, do you know what? That sounds like the fucking best two weeks ever. Um, (laughs) So I don't know why I was complaining, to be honest. Um, I was was probably just a bit tired. But um, yeah, it was was fun. I think it was the amount of trips was just reflective of the the time a little bit. So Mm. here you're kind of like... Are still a slightly pre-recession. I think that's probably one aspect of it. It's a little yeah. bit pre-recession. Not that trips really kind of like went away when the recession hit, but you know, obviously, when the recession does hit, there are some changes. Um, you know, some companies will go out of business in the next few years. Yeah, and um, including THQ eventually. And mm. um, I'm sure not presumably not because they made the Dennis Hopper Spider game, but um, you know, <laughs> it kind of helped. I shouldn't have spent twenty million on getting Billy Bob Thornton <laughs> to voice a gas station attendant in the background of a Spider game. Wow, um, yeah. So it was um, it was just a lot of it around, and also this was you know that period of the um, HD console generation where everyone had their good shit ready basically this is where mm. you know a bunch of big hitters start rolling out and you know um uh, you know new series kind of pop up and then old series return in HD for the first time um you're finally seeing a few games from um some Japanese developers in HD that are actually like impressing people mm. um which is um interesting cuz it was it had been like slightly fallow for years on that front um mm. I think that um, Capcom's an exception to that. They made like Lost Planet and Dead Rising, which are very impressive. But um, I don't know. Generally speaking, I would say that it wasn't like the best era for um, Square Enix or Konami around here. I guess then, Matthew, I'll jump straight into what happened this year, kind of like E3-wise and news-wise. Yeah. So it's not like a, a massive year for games industry news. When I was looking at games, sort of the games year in review, there wasn't much in there where it's like anything earth-shaking there were no kind of new versions of consoles this year it was kind of um relatively straightforward so i did watch but uh, well i basically like um skipped through a bunch of the um e3 conferences this is oh, yeah. this is when e3 was still small scale it was still kind of like um basically more of a an industry facing show in 2007 they had downsized 
In 2008, they were still had a, a very tiny attendance, but they were back in the Los Angeles Convention Center. Um, mm. But there were there were fewer games, as I understood it. Um, there weren't weren't as many sort of like um, things on the show floor, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I must admit, though, the idea of like a mostly empty Los Angeles Convention Center while I explore and um, play games <laughs> and interview developers sounds like heaven to me compared to some yeah, of the later yeah. ones. But um, nonetheless, so um, I would say none of the manufacturers had good conferences this year it wasn't just nintendo nintendo had a particularly bad one but i would say they were all quite bad um if these were the conferences for any of the manufacturers now in terms of the quality of stuff and the the way they were presented they would be universally slated i think um right and i think that's partly because it was only you maybe have to go down the line about two or three years from now to get to the point where publishers are treating them like the public are actually watching this Whereas mm. I think the publishers didn't do that necessarily at this point in time. They were still saw it as like business facing. It just happened to be that the loads of news was generated from this conference. But now they kind of see it as like, you know, consumers and press are um, are watching it alike. You know, it's um, mm. a cultural mm. moment. What about, um, well, what about the showmanship of um, Peter Moore's GTA tattoo from the years before? <laughs> well, that sure made for like a, a fun photo in magazines. That's I, definitely pu- that's public facing. Yeah, yeah. I just think this year, uh, Don, Don Matrick with his full chest tattoo of Viva Pinata Two <laughs> just didn't just didn't carry it. <laughs> yeah. So on the subject of Xbox, their conference is actually particularly miserable when it comes to business language. There's a lot of like Don Matrick saying, and this is and this is going to lead to growth and blah 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 blah. And you're like, yeah. oh, this is really like, ugh. it's like watching an investor kind of um, an investor call instead of like a you know an E3 conference but um they probably did have the best one though still by default so mm. for Xbox they landed Final Fantasy 13 as a multi-platform game this year um kind of emerging trend around this time is that console manufacturers were struggling to kind of keep exclusivity on games this mostly affected Sony and benefited Microsoft actually um Sony managed to hold on to Metal Gear Solid 4 as an exclusive but mm. Final Fantasy you know had been a, basically a, a staple of PlayStation since Final Fantasy 7 uh has kind of slipped through their fingers a little bit but you know you can't blame Square Enix because making games in this era was incredibly fucking expensive so you think well mm. you know get the game to as many people as possible and so, yeah, they landed that at Final Fantasy Thirteen. That did annoy... They didn't, they didn't tell people at the time, though, that it was going to be on 32 discs on Xbox, <laughs> which I, I always thought was a bold decision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's funny as well how much it is just HD video. It's actually... Um, the, there's a version of uh, Final Fantasy Thirteen on PC that I think is completely miserable. Um, the um, PS3 one is still the way to play it, and it's so much... I think you need, like, more than 100 gigabytes free on your hard drive just to install it and uh yeah bizarre but um so yeah that riled up playstation fanboys that square enix had um taken it over to the xbox at the same time um xbox had uh resident Evil 5 on stage which you know it was uh, another game that was kind of like a series associated with playstation but it had now you know this big presence on xbox but the exclusives they showed this year again demonstrate what a run Microsoft was having. So, you've got Gears, Gears of War 2, Fable 2, Banjo-Kazooie Nuts and Bolts, Aviva Pinata 2 on stage. I um, Someone mentioned that Halo Wars was shown at this conference too. I couldn't I couldn't find them showing it, but still. Um, obviously, like this is a Halo-free year for um, Microsoft. They don't have anything like huge on that front, but they've still got loads of other stuff going on. And also, they um, they were closely aligned with Bethesda on Fallout. They um, showed like a long gameplay demo with Todd Howard on stage. So, all of that stuff was very impressive. 
And um, finally, they showed off the revamped, a revamped Xbox Live interface and um, what avatars look like on the system. And they would roll that out later that year. Um, do you have any thoughts on Xbox at, at this time, Matthew? I, I remember being impressed by this and feeling quite jealous of this just because they had like they had quite a full full slate. And and while yeah, you, you know the you know it's maybe not like the mega announcements at E3. This was on top of the knowledge that. They had all that other stuff which we're going to talk about in our probably in our top tens. You know, there was just so much happening that year that it felt it felt super busy. Like regardless of the conference, there was no denying that Xbox were just really winning at this point, and um, it felt like Sony was struggling by comparison. So, weirdly, both Sony and Microsoft made a big deal about the fact that they launched a video store at this conference. So they they both launched it at basically the same time. We're like, you can download and play videos on your console right now and um i guess this probably was a big thing at the time but i i um i didn't ever really watch like um i didn't ever really pay for movies i watched on my console so this kind of passed me by a little bit did you ever Mm. indulge in this sort of thing no not at all yeah i think you know back then i was still in in the kind of you know using my postal rental service which were obviously massive and you know who needed it when you had that on tap so yeah and you're in a pre-netflix era so you know um plus uh you know uh, matthew needs his smallville episodes you know uh, he's not gonna <laughs> he's not gonna buy them from uncle sony it's not gonna happen um were you still watching smallville at this point matthew or had you burned out uh, i don't know I, I i i went through a bit of a weird period in 2008 where i got like super into naruto <laughs> <laughs> really okay that's weird yeah um so i i watched just yeah, shit loads of Naruto in 2008, which I think has led to Rich, who I was living with at the time, assuming like I'm some like massive dweeb. <laughs> well, I, I guess I would probably draw that conclusion myself if I uh, yeah. sort of lived with you. Um, yeah, what was there? What was the kind of like? What happened there then? Was there, was there an event in your personal life to cause this, or was it just kind of like curiosity about anime, and that was like your the rabbit hole you went down? Yeah, I just didn't have any friends who were like super into anime. I uh, I had no idea where to start. I mean, that's obviously as mainstream as it gets. So that was like me going, mm, "Do I like anime? I'll watch this incredibly mainstream thing." I did really like it as well. Yeah, fair enough. You know, the um, the one anime I tried to watch was uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion, which if you're going to watch one anime, that is uh, fucking emotionally exhausting. I've not watched any since, so um, you know, I'm not sure it was uh, the best decision. Yeah. <laughs> so PlayStation this year, then they um. Launched this video store. They showed off um, the terrible PlayStation Home again. Um, I think this was the conference where I briefly interfaced with Ted Price from Insomniac via PlayStation Home, trying to type uh, using the um, on-screen uh, keyboard um, text chat, which is like basically impossible. And um, yeah, I, I think it was um, my memory of covering this time is that PlayStation were getting it together a little bit this year, but still not like quite that exciting. Their big games weren't that huge. The, the, the big announcement of this conference was God of War 3. They had this kind of static image of um, Kratos they showed, basically. And um, everyone kind of knew this game was coming. So uh, even though it wouldn't release for a little while yet, I think Sony were just desperate to kind of tell people that they're actually making it. So they mm. did that. They showed off infamous gameplay. They'd announced that the previous year. And um, Resistance 2 was one of their big games this year, one of the brown shooters that um, came to define (laughs) PS3 in this early um, part of the generation. But uh, a fun game, talk about it a bit later, but um, showed off the 
main character fighting like this huge kind of um, kaiju sized monster on a skyscraper which is one of the best levels in the game and um sony also went big on online ps3 games that no one would really care about like dc universe <laughs> online and massive action game that was their other big reveal <laughs> mag yep <laughs> Um, I did play a bit of Mag, and it was just really kind of scatter, scatter shot and boring. I didn't really um, get it, but I understand there's a bit more of a kind of like a US sort of like appreciation for the SOCOM games that maybe we didn't get in the UK. Right, um, right. Yeah. So, yeah. But otherwise, um, Sony had some good PSP games. They did, um, they did, you know, show off some like uh, decent stuff. This is actually a weirdly good year for the PSP. Um, a few games might pop up in our list later on. Or at least in our honourable mentions. So um, they won't. Com- it wasn't a complete write-off, but it wasn't that exciting. Any memories of Sony from this year, Matthew? I guess this is pre you only a PS3, right? So kind of. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, I did. I bought a PSP on the San Francisco THQ trip. That's when I bought one. Hmm. Um, so uh, which was then stolen um, you know, <laughs> a, a little while back. Um, so in the infamous Dyson incident. <laughs> uh, yeah, they now didn't bring um... back my PSP though, did they? <laughs> when it came to your psp it's a shame they didn't do the same thing they did with the dysons where it's like your psp and a lineup of like a game gear like (laughs) one of those tiger electronic handhelds you know what i mean um those all-in-one mega drive uh cheap devices you get from argos you know what i mean yeah you're like can you switch them all on so i can hear the power-up sound (laughs) (laughs) oh Okay, yeah. So um, the PSP was go- was doing all right. They um, had like some all right bespoke versions of PSP games this year. Like um, the Force Unleashed had a specific version for the PSP that was all right. They showed Patapon at this um, at this show, and uh, yeah, they um, Square Enix were making some bits and pieces. Yeah, it's um, actually a pretty solid year for the handheld. But um, uh, no one really outside of Japan cared that much about the PSP. So um, what are you going to do? Nintendo, though, Matthew. Um, so I uh, the Wii Motion Plus reveal was the big thing here, but I wondered if you might want to talk about this E3 conference a bit more since it's more your sort of your, your area and you would have been paying close attention at the time. This this was a total disaster. So the, the month before E3, I don't know where we got this information from, but someone trustworthy had told us that certain things were going to be announced at E3. Um, definitely like Punch Out and. Um, I think there was talks of like some Kid Icarus revival was like really big at the time, which were obviously both things that did end up happening, just not this year. And I'm not saying that if those things had happened this year would be any different, but I remember writing um, like the lead news the month before of like, expect this, this and this, you know, this is going to be a really strong E3. And I remember the next month's editorial after E3, like basically apologising for that and saying, okay, yeah, we were wrong. None of that happened. And it was terrible. It was, I felt really gloomy um this was the e3 where yeah motion plus was at the heart of it um which they used to show off wii sports resort which actually was fine like this this, it was fine in the end but it's it's at the heart of the conference it just isn't what you kind of like you know hope hope for and dream of um animal crossing city folk ended up being not a very good animal crossing but at the same time, I wasn't that bothered about Animal Crossing, so I couldn't even really get hyped for its announcement. Mm. Um, the We Speak thing just gave me the fear. Like, everything was so peripheral, mad. Like, it was, you know, we just had, like, the Wii Zapper and the Wii Balance Board, and now it was, and here's the, you know, here's the Wii Motion Plus, here's this We Speak. It was just getting unwieldy. Like, in the office, I felt like we were a bit of a, 
you know, laughing stock because of it. You know, people were like, oh, how much more crap are they going to make you buy? And just our office space was so cluttered with this stuff. Right, yeah. Um, we Music just had a disastrous showing at that, you know, I, I talked about it on the last week's episode. Well, I do like it, but, you know, it just wasn't, it isn't a sexy announcement at all. Then they got Sean White snowboarding on stage. Sean White, it's exciting, remember him? Him doing his balance board thing, and it was really embarrassing. Just terrible, and it was just really unconvincing chat between, like, Reggie and Bill Trinan and um, I think it was Cammy Dunaway, who was, like, Reggie's sort of number two, uh, who who had this sort of quite sort of mumsy kind of persona, and it was just, it was awful. It was so bad. And I think for me, because that thing I've talked about on this podcast before about like our E3 approach, which was just trying to go above and beyond. And, you know, that was the year we were doing all the the, the, the Mario Galaxy kind of drawings and trying to kind of break down the demo. And that a lot of that was quite like was also like fueled by like Greener's excitement, enthusiasm. So the, the combination of getting used to like a new boss that wasn't Greener and kind of that settling in and also having games which we just couldn't do it for there was like no interest like we, we we couldn't apply that that eye to it it just felt like a huge step down from what happened the year before end gamer was such a positive like enthusiastic thing trying to find that zip and that spark it was definitely difficult it wasn't it wasn't a stellar time that's rough yeah i sort of um i don't even really remember nintendo that much around this time i will say for their on-stage presentation i felt slightly bad that like you know um cammy remains one of like the only sort of female executives i've ever seen at any three conference and she was kind of caught in the maelstrom of you know this uh, of of bad nintendo times and i felt like got a sort of probably an unfair amount of backlash yeah you know yeah she was like super sharp in interviews and you know Definitely, I'm not saying like a bad person or anything, but it was, <laughs> it was so clear like the avenue they were going down with Wii, I mean, because it was it was this huge casual console, like, and that was just the direction they took the conference. But everything else was so hardcore, you know. When other people have got like Fallout and Resi and Final Fantasy, you don't want sort of someone kind of like stand wobbling about on a balance board, going, "Whoa, this is so fun!" It just looked really, really unconvincing. Yeah, um, yeah. Sean White makes a pretty poor impression, I would say, on stage. Um, yeah, and yeah. like the thing, and, and like Nintendo, like they really get their act together later because I mean, a they they hit into like games which are more exciting. But I think the like Nintendo's sort of treehouse strand at E3, where they basically streamed the whole show with their localization team, who are like quite big characters and they're quite funny people. I think that really, really reinvigorated it. But they, they, they had some quite bad E3 conferences for quite a while. Even like 2009 and 2010, like even when you get some like great announcements, they didn't have any like showmanship, or they'd lost their sense of drama. Like I don't feel like we had any amazing like magic E3 moments for quite a long time. Really, it feels like the um, existence of Nintendo Direct is a is a response to like these years, doesn't it? Really. Um, yeah definitely socially and everything on the mag we were having a real laugh it was fantastic and you know we made some great issues but like the review sections were like super depressing in the months following this and i was wondering if the uh ds's like relatively good software would help make up for that on um endgamer at all was there any side of it to that yeah it did but again it, it, it wasn't really stuff you could like build a cover out of um there wasn't a lot of like 
big like Nintendo stuff. Like this is a year third party did some like really really heavy lifting. Um, like Jap- yeah, Japanese developers on 3ds, amazing stuff this year, and they appear in my list a few times. That's um, that's fair enough. Yeah, I think um, for um, PlayStation, this is a year that it starts to like balance out a little bit more because. Uh, some of the third-party kind of like games aren't as badly ported as they were earlier in the generation. The PS3 obviously famously hard to kind of develop for, and I think that around this time Sony made a deal with Epic to um, have the Unreal Engine 3 like optimized for PS3 or something like that, basically to help developers make it easier to get their games onto the console. Something like mm. that happened, and I think that helps. Like um, when I look at this year's games, there are no real like bad really bad ps3 ports that i recall um a few more would follow later like um bayonetta is a notoriously bad um version on ps3 but yes it's um it was nothing quite like the orange box in the previous year where it was like unquestionably worse than it was on xbox so sony had at least sorted that out a bit plus um this was the year of metal gear solid 4 um, which we'll talk about a bit and that you know basically showed that sony finally had something that other consoles didn't have that we managed to make the console have like this massive hype moment, but it still didn't really seem mm. to turn interest around. It felt like it came and went because the people who really like Metal Gear, I think, just had already bought PS3s, knowing they were going to play it. And mm. Metal Gear is like is a big seller, but it's not like what kind of Call of Duty was becoming at this time. It wasn't like a ten million seller; it was like a, a four or five or six million seller. Mm. So it was actually a bit more of a kind of moment in time that everyone kind of moved on and it wasn't it didn't end up being the biggest deal of this year so um yeah i thinking the i remember thinking the ps3 was getting better but yeah like you just looking over at the xbox mags and the quality of stuff they had like week after you know, week after week they just seemed to be um having a better time of it so uh, you could mm. tangibly feel that um, the only other thing I was going to note from the events of this year, Matthew, um, were that plastic instrument games were on the wane already. People have started to turn on them a bit. When I was um, looking around for news from this time, a lot of people were calling out the fact that Rock Band 2 and Guitar Hero World Tour had happened very quickly, that they'd come around the corner very fast, and that already people had played a bunch of these and were cooling down on them a bit. And um, I think I forgot how short the interest in this genre was, actually. Like, it was... It sort of started mm. in 2006, and it was kind of over by the end of 2009. Yeah. It was, um, yeah, real short burst of life. Um, Dooming yeah. a million living rooms to dusty guitars and drum sets to this day. <laughs> yeah, I honestly think that, um, you know, Activision and EA should basically partner up and turn those old instruments into, like, low-income housing. Um, that should be, like, <laughs> a thing they do. Um, yeah, but... Uh, Maybe you have to play a mad drum solo to open the front door. <laughs> So I was wondering if you had any other notes from this year, Matthew, before we move on to the games, because I think that kind of covers most of the big stuff. Yeah, I I think so too. I I think like some more stuff will come out from just talking about the games. So we're going to take a quick break here, but we're going to come back with a long list of honourable mentions and then our top 10 games of 2008. Matthew, welcome back. So, the year is 2008. What does your pop culture weekend look like? Uh, I probably watched some Naruto uh, by myself because (laughs) I was very lonely. (laughs) 
then I probably would have gone to uh, the little theatre in Bath, the art house cinema, and watched some really bleak Polish art house film. That sounds like a good weekend now, to be honest. Minus the Naruto bit, I think. Um, but you know, yeah, that's that's basically the vibe. Yeah, and then uh, come back to the flat and get told off for not doing the washing up by Rich. <laughs> So I was a slop to live with. Oh, so that stuff. was that was that was probably it. <laughs> okay, yeah. I mean, as someone who makes podcasts with you, I can see that being the vibe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no offense, Matthew. I am a surprise. Yeah, I'm a surprising agent of chaos. <laughs> <laughs> um, my pop culture weekend. I think I I too was very lonely in 2008. Lonely staff writer boy, and um, I. But we didn't have like anything like the little theatre. I would have gone to see like Cloverfield by myself, and um, mm. uh, then uh, spend the afternoon maybe watching um, Prison Break season three. Or um, oh, nice! This was the year I gave up watching House as well um, because I felt like it had um, <laughs> gone off the boil, and uh, and also Desperate Housewives is becoming more and more of a TV snob. And um, <laughs> what I think I started watching The Wire this year, for example. What's Lost still on at this point? Yeah, Lost was on till two thousand ten. Oh, okay. I probably would have watched that at some point as well. When I was working on Endgamer, like, in the early days, like, there were people in the office I knew from the mags who I really wanted to be friends with because, like, I, you know, they were writers I grew growing up, but I didn't, I didn't really know how to kind of, like, instigate. If they didn't come to the pub, you know, it was quite hard to get to know certain people. And I remember, like, Tim Weaver um, used to come over and talk to Greener about Lost, and that was, like, the one bit of interaction Tim had with Endgamer in the early, in the early years. So I was desperate to get in on, like, the Lost chat so I could be pals with Tim. My pop culture was all just stepping stones towards sort of, sort of social manipulation. Nice, yeah, that's good. <laughs> Um, well, that's the best way to make friends isn't it uh, very very machiavellian <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think that um uh, i think a lot of the people at the time um who worked at future if i'd have worked there wouldn't have taken me serious uh seriously intellectually um and i might have like um blundered by um talking about an episode of american dad that i'd watched it's funny actually when i joined imagine I was worried that everyone was going to be quite sophisticated, and I thought, "Oh uh, <laughs> shit!" Like, um, you know, I, I, I mean, I better only talk about like HBO shows that I've seen or something. And then I think it was like day three that there was one of the PlayStation magazines. A big crowd had um, got around, like uh, watching Peter Griffin and Family Guy just fart, and I was like, "Oh <laughs> no, 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 these people are, are like not only on my level, they're possibly slightly below my level." And the- <laughs> And therefore, that means I'm probably going to be okay here. Um, <laughs> I think it was just, it was kind of just uh, pleasant to realise they were down to earth. I actually like really when I get um, nostalgic about this period, I miss the vibe of that office. It was like just it was just fun, and you could just go to someone's desk and talk for ten minutes about you know a thing they liked. And I just that's something that feel I feel like I haven't done that for so so long. Oh and, yeah. Um, God. Yeah, that's like leaning leaning over a filing cabinet to talk to Games Master or something <laughs> was just like, yeah, I loved it. Yeah, so, I wasted a lot of um, Simon Miller's time, who was the um, editor of X360 at the time. So, uh, yeah, good stuff. So, Matthew, we're into the games of 2008. So, shall we alternate on our honourable mentions first before we get into our top tens? Um, yeah, yeah. So I'll start with mine. I've uh, <laughs> I've put Star Wars The Force Unleashed on here. So I couldn't reasonably put this in my top 10 games of the year. Um, I don't believe it uh, belongs there. It's a, it's a probably like a 6 or a 7 out of 10. But as uh, someone who was like a bit starved for good Star Wars content at the time, I did quite like this game about a secret, Darth Vader's secret apprentice who um, kind of goes around doing these sort of um, self-missions for him. 
and um, goes to these various Star Wars worlds. In this game, they made a big deal about the fact that they had these kind of um, wacky physics that meant you could like um, send objects flying by using force push. They had these really exaggerated force powers. And generally speaking, mm. I quite liked it. Weirdly, the premise of um, uh, Jedi Fallen Order is not a million miles away from what this game is. It's kind of also mm. about a kind of secret Jedi who's kind of like uh, in a set in the same time period between the two trilogies. And um, I thought the ending was reasonably good to this game. And it was actually a fairly solid bit of Star Wars um, storytelling, even if it was a bit, it overstretched it a little bit when it came to the um, plausibility of the lore. Did you ever play this one, Matthew? I did play it. I I think I reviewed it for someone. I remember thinking like the first couple of levels where you're just throwing like wookies off trees or whatever or a real <laughs> laugh. Like that's basically all anyone wants from a Star Wars game. And then I remember thinking like there it came a point where like the not the challenge ramped up, it was super difficult, but like your powers became less like throwaway and less kind of playful and it became a bit more about grinding away on not very fun enemy types. But then yeah, it ends on like like a the whole thing's quite a key bit of Star Wars lore, isn't it? Isn't it like the forming of the Rebel Alliance? Yeah, he sort of plays a role in it. That's what I mean by it stretches the plausibility a bit too far. Um, yeah. Because he... Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, 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 I had high hopes for this, but it was it was very, like... It was quite, like, a, a flashy version of quite old game thinking. It felt kind of very previous gen in that it was, like, level by level going through hacking and slashing... You know, it was nowhere near as sexy or or well done as like God of War, which it was sort of going for. Yeah, um, it wanted to be I, God of War quite bad. Yeah, I yeah. Uh, I always remember interviewing the um, the producer on this at Star Wars Celebration, I think it was in London hmm. for a press event because um, there was a version on Wii, a not very good version, but and I remember talking to him about like how they came up with the story, and he he told this story about. They they came up with basically like five big pitches for a game. Then they basically have to go to George Lucas and then they have to ask him like whether it happened in Star Wars. Yeah. That and they were like, George, did he have a dark? Did Darth Vader have like a secret dark apprentice at some point? And George Lucas is like, yeah, he did actually. Yeah, you're right. Well done for like tapping into my inner thoughts. <laughs> and you're like, is this really how Star Wars works? That's preposterous. This idea that you have to like humor this this sort of maniac with with pitches until he's like yeah you have thought of something i'd already thought of congratulations <laughs> you can do it i remember thinking oh i mean i already thought star wars was bust at this point because of episodes one to three but you were like this is just madness this is no way to run a business <laughs> yeah i think some people are quite sympathetic towards um george lucas these days about how much um the prequel trilogy was slated i totally get that people, you know, Star Wars fans are like a, a, a bizarre sort and, um, yeah, overzealous. But, uh, yeah, I agree with you that that was um, an odd sort of way to pitch the game because they had loads of different ideas for what this game could have been. Like, there was like a Darth Maul pitch, I think, and then maybe... I think it was like a, a Wookiee pitch. Yeah, yeah. There's, um, if you've ever read the um, Story of Lucasfilm book by uh, Rob Smith, like a, it's like a hardcover book, um, that's not that honest about... Um, how Lucasfilm did things, I would say, at least not in the later years where they changed presidents loads and seemed to keep switching direction. It um, does have like all of the different logos they made for um, the pictures of this game, and um, yeah, it's interesting stuff. But uh, mm. yeah, I don't know. I thought it was um, it was all right. Yeah, that's mm. um, that's that's purely it. What's your uh, first honourable mention, Matthew? Advance Wars Dark Conflict, which I don't have a great deal to say about. I thought I needed flat to, to sort of mention it because a you know it's the last Advance Wars Nintendo made, 
Um, so presumably it didn't do well enough or, you know, it's presumed to be the Advance Wars which killed Advance Wars. Um, I am not a big Advance Wars fan, which is why this isn't in my list. Though I do understand this one to be a you know a a perfectly good entry in a series people had a lot of love for. Um, they made the weird decision to go down this like grim kind of route. It it, it sort of dropped the the kind of color and the poppiness of the original games for this sort of like quite hard sort of you know war torn nation, and it was all a bit brown and beige, and that seemed very misjudged. But I'm just I'm. I'm not a even on this cartoony level like I'm so not a base building strategy resource management type like it's just not my deal um I always struggled with the original games as well but um I remember like, I think Alex Dale reviewed this for for Gamer and gave it like 93 like he absolutely rated it I just thought I'd mention it in case people were like hmm what about Advance Wars it's a shame that they haven't made more in the original style because I think that was a sticking point with this one that they kind of lost its sort of, like, fun a bit. And I think it was what, like, the Wargroove guys were trying to tap into, which was like, let's just do Advance Wars as it was. You know, one of your commanders is a dog, where this one, I think, is a bit more like, wow, this is actually war, man, and it's hitting everyone hard, and what's it like to live in a, you know, in an an age of war? And you're like, ugh, yikes. Well, see, it's interesting, because my memory of the DS one is that people really liked it, the first DS one. It, and that, um, but that people did mention the fact that it felt a bit like a kind of retread of the other ones. So I wonder if this was—that's my memory of it anyway. But I wonder if this was an attempt to try and differentiate them a bit to add a bit of a different flavor. Yeah, but, I, um, yeah. It, it, it's a Nintendo series. Like, yeah, I'm not mad into. I you know haven't you know done much sort of reading about. I don't think there's like an Awata Ras for this one, for example. So it's a bit of a mystery. Some of the thinking behind it. Hmm. Yeah, um, and and quite an old series as well, right? It, um, it predates mm. the um, the GBA. So, mm-hmm. yeah, cool. So, my next one is Resistance Two. That's another of my honourable mentions. So, mm. I mentioned this earlier. It's um, basically has the Ratchet and Clank Insomniac kind of novelty element of like these different weapons, like uh, fire a dart at an enemy, and then if they go into cover, your bullets will kind of follow them around a corner and that sort of thing. Um, some really fun weapons and fun grenades and um, yeah it's quite a brown game you're fighting a lot of aliens and stuff but I would say that this is actually a really good slightly half-life infused wandering around American cities empty American cities killing aliens and fighting the occasional giant monster there's like a a fun um, they're they're quite linear fights but they're really kind of cinematic it's like this like I say a kaiju sized monster picks you up and like throws you across the city and before you fight it, you see it kind of in the distance, smashing buildings up and stuff like that. Like yeah. um, they went for a definite vibe with this one, and I, um, I, I thought it, I thought it was actually like a real rock solid, like PS3 exclusive. Like it was a, it was a fun shooter that definitely had a different flavor to Halo. Also mm-hmm. had like a very, very quite a bizarre. I didn't play it that much of it, but it had like a co-op mode where I think there was like eight of you walking through kind of a city it was always left left for dead style while you were like absolutely swarmed by enemies and just trying to kind of like fend them off and um i remember enjoying that a bit too but um Ooh. i can't imagine you ever played this matthew it doesn't seem like something you would No, play. it wasn't my cup of tea though i do have a fondness for whatever genre of first person shooter this is which is the the kind of the half-life inspired i guess the later version of this is like what you used to get in like metro for example hmm. i like linear st- story heavy first person shooters 
Yeah. Um, I would say but, that Resistance 3 is probably the most Half-Life-like. That's um, very, very similar uh, to Half-Life 2 in approach. So uh, mm. I can't imagine Sony will revisit this series. Um, I could never work out how... It seemed like Insomniac was a bit down on the response to this game, but um, critically it was very well received. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I quite enjoyed it. What's your next one, Matthew? Um, I don't want to throw a little shout-out for Time Hollow, which was a Nintendo DS sort of visual novel by Konami um, about a boy with a magical time pen. (laughs) Uh, He could draw holes with his pen into the past and then stick his hand through and like meddle with the past and the whole kind of gimmick was there was something else going on with some other rival kind of time tinkerer and you had to kind of basically reach into the past to sort of save people in the present um i like time travel stories uh this was one of those sort of um slightly kind of you know sort of back to the future kind of who triggers what do you you know it does this all kind of fold in on itself by the end um so that kind of ticked ticked a box for me there um i also just liked you know i was so mad about ace attorney at the time like any, anything i was really really up for uh like anything kind of visual novelly that did, that did get localized because there were way more of these games in japan and they were just unplayable there was one which was like Ace Attorney, but at the stock market, oh, right. where you were buying like shares and trying to like plunge the the price of like evil companies and things, which which always looked really good fun, but never got localized. Mm. Um, but this did, and um, it's not like like that warmly thought of. I think it got like a Metacritic of like sixty five or something, or maybe seventies. So I gave it a seven out of ten, but I was very very fond of it. And if you are kind of a uh, you know, a, a, f- a fan of sort of visual novels and, you know, you're a bit of a completionist and you're looking around at, like, pre-owned stuff. If you can find a cheap copy of Time Hollow, it's uh, it's an interesting enough kind of oddity to include in the mix. Was this the um, Shadow of Memories, um, Dev, who worked on this one? That I can't remember. I should have done more research into this. Um, fine. But you are right. Yeah, there, there was a weird strand of time games. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Um, that's interesting. Maybe that will come up in a future Games Court episode, who knows. Um, yeah, so, cool. Right, my next one then. I'm um, going with Metal Gear Solid 4, Guns of the Patriots next, Matthew. So, I don't know if this has made your top 10. I guess we can't really say. But, nonetheless, I've put this here because when I was making my top 10, I can't say that... I, of all the games on here that I would replay in 2021... Metal Gear Solid 4 wouldn't get anywhere near my my top 10. Mm. It's such a, like... Obviously, the cutscenes are incredibly long, famously long. It's a very muddled game. Um, Some bits of it are really good. Obviously, revisiting Shadow Moses is very well regarded. I think the first section where you're walking through the war zone is pretty strong, too. In fact, I quite like the second chapter. It's more like the third one, and then, like, the last, like, four hours of the game are just... That Prague chapter, that blows. Is it Prague? Yeah, the one where you're following. It's like um, it's like a mysterious Eastern European city, but yeah, it looks exactly oh, like Oh, it sucks. It's like, um, this didn't make my list, so... <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad. I was. I would be surprised if it did. But, um, yeah, it was a very... It's a hugely... In terms of, like, significance to me professionally for the year, this did feel like a huge moment. It was like, you know, one of the games that I joined the magazine to write about, basically. But then when it got there, it was so, so bloated and so the opposite of Metal Gear Solid 3. And like, 
such a kind of um, fan servicey sort of like boring nostalgia it's, wank. Um, yeah, it, it, it's it's the worst Metal Gear Solid for me. I'd even put it below two. Yeah, it was definitely worse than two to me. Um, um, yeah, I, I I felt like it's a game which has got like a thousand Kojima touches that you fall in love with and that elevate Metal Gear Solid in the, the Metal Gear Solid series, but it, it just didn't have, like, the core gameplay was so, like, muddled. It, it got so distracted, it didn't know what it wanted to be. It flitted between different ideas and different segments of the game. I, it's the worst It's the worst game he ever made, you know, followed then by Metal Gear Solid Five, which is the best technical game he ever made. Um, though I know a lot of people have, like, a huge amount of affection for this, you know, from maybe, like, a wanky kojima law side but that isn't really what does it for me in metal gear solid you know i like his playful mechanic mechanics side and this was just like a mess i thought um yeah this was like just uh, this was basically him being indulged on any old nonsense um which yeah. is like a kind of like a side of kojima that uh, kojima's work that you know is is a real flaw i would say that like you say, Metal Gear Solid Five is better for kind of focusing down on stuff. Like you say, it does flip between things. It's not actually a very good stealth game. This you um, no. has like uh, the a version of Metal Gear Solid 3's like camouflage system, where you kind of like blend into the environments and stuff. But I didn't find it worked anywhere near as well as it did in MGS3. And mm. sometimes it was just like a pure cover shooter. It felt like, but not a very good one. Um, it had this kind of like really naff like return guns to that Drebin guy who lives with a monkey in a tank and um, <laughs> and that was just like I didn't really get what that was going for and um, yeah like you say sometimes it's kind of like an on rails shooter and sometimes it's you know follow a guy around Prague for a while it has no good boss fights this game either which is criminal for Metal Gear I would say that even Metal Gear Solid 2 has at least like four really good boss fights yeah, this, yeah. all the Beauty and the Beast boss fights in this are rubbish I think they're like uh, visually spectacular although this game is incredibly brown when you go look at look at it now <laughs> it's actually like not aged nearly as well as MGS3 has like the colour palette is really like of its time brown and grey HD era filters and stuff and um, yeah I just, I, I couldn't, I, I don't think I will ever replay it. I'm too old now to replay a game with this many bad cutscenes. So, yeah. um, I, I, yeah. I think it is, like, definitely worth experiencing, though. Yeah. Like, it's, like, weirdly essential, even though, especially if you've, if you've played any of the other, metal, if you have a passing interest in Metal Gear, you kind of owe it to yourself to experience it. But it's, uh, it's a really messed up game. Yeah. It's a real pre-recession game. I think I've said that before in this podcast. It's like, Every every bit of nonsense that could be indulged is indulged. So, uh, yeah. Hit me with your next one, Matthew. Oh, a little shout-out for God of War Chains of Olympus, which I really liked. This was a PSP um, God of War. There were two. Was this the second or first one? I this is the remember. first one. The second one is it's... called Ghost of Sparta. Yeah. Um, I, I just thought this translated really, really well. I, I played a, you know, a couple of action games on PSP where I didn't really think the kind of the control scheme was or you know it just didn't have the inputs to kind of like deliver on it but this one i thought was just beautifully made yeah i, I yeah i just i really really dug it i was sort of a, a sort of secret secret god of war liker yeah this was incredibly polished is it ready at dawn yep that's right who now um, make the uh, low neko games for um oculus yeah just very flashy did you play this one i really love this game too and it almost made my top 10 yeah i i think it, it, it is great and Actually, I think that uh, people are a bit down on the old God of War games now because they have that 
because they have that dumb sex mini game and like <laughs> occasionally they'll show you some badly rendered breasts. Which game in 2008 didn't? <laughs> They're kind of Mario cutie. Kart did. Everyone remembers that. <laughs> the kind of bad QTE um, sex mini games really date those God of War games though. That, more than they deserved. Like they were, they are le- they are still like legit good games of their own right. The God of War games. It's just that mm. that side of things makes them seem really adolescent and embarrassing. I'm- but uh, yeah. I haven't played a, a lot of them recently. In my head, I remember it being, like, super naff rather than, like, offensive. Like, I remember some of them being a bit, like... It's almost a bit carry-on. It would, like, cut to, like, a giant, like, fizzing candle or something. But I don't know if I'm just misremembering that. No, no, every single one of them would do that, for sure. Like, it was... that yeah. was that was definitely like um part of it but i also think there was a slightly like there was a horny part of its dna as well but um <laughs> yeah, yeah but you're, you're probably right <laughs> either way i don't feel like i don't feel like they quite get the sort of respect they deserve they were really like rock solid and to draw a little bit of a link with the god of war game on ps4 that everyone loves this does have quite a strong element of um kratos and his daughter i believe and like that factors into this story quite heavily, and it feels like it's, um, I don't know, maybe tapping into some of those ideas that the later game would be built on in terms of Kratos as a father and the mistakes he's made and stuff. Like, I recall it was that definitely being quite a, a bit like, sm- like smaller and a bit personal feeling, I guess, because of like the scale of what could be done on PSP. But that, that, that played to it, uh, you know, that, that factored into, yeah, why it's, why it's pretty strong, I think. Yeah, this game, I really, I really rated this game. I feel like if you were a PSP owner, at the time and you bought this you would actually feel like sony it was one of the times that sony actually captured the kind of home console experience on a handheld um yeah started really spectacularly as well had like a big battlefield sequence where you um manned a ballista and shot a big arrow at like a giant and stuff i think it was um very well done so yeah yeah good shout almost made my top 10 mm. so my next one is prince of persia so they rebooted this game this year people might remember this as a kind of like slightly cell shaded style one uh nolan north versus uh, no a famous persian nolan north vo- voice of the main <laughs> character and uh yeah i think that it wasn't that well received by fans of the previous games like sands of time it's not like a precision based platformer like that was it was a bit more in that assassin's creed vein of um you're kind of jumping but not really jumping you're sort of like your movement's slightly automated but I uh, I gotta say I quite like this game. I think it it looked amazing for the time. It had mm. really nice music. It was a bit pre Ubisoft just making open world games because it's kind of like more of a Zelda-y structure where you can come back to levels later on with a new ability and then like unlock a whole bunch of the world you hadn't seen before. So it was that kind of structure of world. Yeah, I was uh, I was a fan. Do you ever play this one? I played very little of it. I came to it late. I think I may have even bought it on a pre-owned or something. Um, so I've yeah, pretty hazy memory of of finding the combat objectionable in some way, but I can't remember why. <laughs> it's um, it's a very like kind of like a, a counter ba- counter based. If you take three hits, you die. Kind of combat system. Like you fight these shadow monsters, and um, he's got this kind of like little kind of claw hand gauntlet thing that he'd use to like throw enemies in the air, and then like he'd sort of hit them while they're in the air, and then right, a lot of kind of yeah, I, I just. I, I had huge affection for for um, definitely Sands of Time, an affection which I think faded over the two sequels because they just they went all horrible and dark. And was this quite auto platformy? Yes, definitely. Yeah, I, I think that was probably what did for it. Like I was, I was a bit of a sort of like sort of zealot back then for like you know proper platforming, as as you'll see in one of my picks. 
in my top 10. But I, uh, yeah, that was a bugbear of mine. So I, that's probably what did it. Yeah, I think that's actually like, that's fair enough. And in, in loads of other games, I've complained about that being a problem. But um, yeah, I don't know, the um, the world in this game, uh, some of the ni- some of like the nicest environments I've ever seen in a game are in this game. It's a really nice mix of technology and art. Um, download it on PC and take another look. Yeah, probably play it for 10 minutes and then move on with your life, but that's fine. Um, okay. So hit me with your next one, Matthew. Gears of War 2 didn't make my top 10. Did it make yours? No, it didn't make my top 10. I'm not <laughs> I'm not much of a Gears of War guy. Um I like the fir- I've only played the first one. I've never played um the rest of them. Yeah, I I I remember Rich was really into this in the flat and we played some in co-op and I think his enthusiasm for it kind of bled into me a little bit. I'm not a I'm a bit of a late comer to Gears in terms of like I I actually really really rate 5 and I replayed 1 2 and 3 a few years ago when I was doing the Xbox YouTube channel and like I appreciated them a bit more like I used to think they were just like dumb games for idiots basically but while the kind of tone of them and the kind of comedy of them and the kind of macho bro culture like isn't me at all you'll be surprised to hear I do like them as like mechanical shooters and two is like really endlessly inventive in a similar way that I I, I felt about Gears 5 actually to like constantly trading up its set pieces it's got the famous bit where you go into the giant worm and chop through its guts and then chainsaw its heart which is just absolutely fantastic um it's got these like giant rock centipedes that move around or like moving cover I remember they're being quite good oh, that's um cool. it's solid yeah i think that i actually think that at the time i was probably in that boat that you're talking about where people would be a bit sniffy about it because of the tone and it's true that gears tone isn't really for me but I do really respect it when action games are incredibly sophisticated, you know. Um, mm. and, That's uh, the thing. Yeah. It's like it's it's a very dumb game made by very smart people. Mm. Yeah, which is you know a, a lot of the best games I like are that. So um, yeah, right. Yeah. So yeah, maybe uh, maybe one day I should just fire through these because um, the redo they did of the original on uh, Xbox One's really nice. Actually, maybe I should just try and rattle through. Yeah, these it's, games. it's they're worth they're worth playing. They do hold up. Ge- Gears Five is genuinely like it's an absolute riot for like ten hours. It's really good fun. Ah, well, there you go. It's um, I remember the multiplayer for this one did take off as well. Like I knew quite a lot of people who were playing Gears Two multiplayer, and it's weird because I can't ever really picture playing a competitive third person game. But I guess like I guess it does happen. It's just yeah, a bit rare. Did this introduce Horde or was it the third one? I can't remember. I um, think this one does introduce Horde. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because that was like that was a bit like Zombies. This was like the year of like explosive co op multiplayer modes yeah there were loads of different horde i I think like horde was a really good um legacy of gears actually because there's loads of different good variants of horde that pop up in um some of the games in the ensuing years so uh, yeah yeah definitely good stuff all right so my next one is pure don't have loads to say about this one in fact i'll bottle it with um the other one i've got here which is motorstorm pacific rift um so Yes, I always call it Pacific Rim um, because that's um, a name of a film, obviously. But um, Pure is, uh, it was by Black Rock Studios who um, would, their big game would be Split Second, which was quite a fun um, burnout-y racing game where you bring down airplanes and stuff and create set pieces. That was fun. Before that, they did this, which is kind of like a doing freestyle stunts on a kind of like um, uh, ATV, those kind of like bike thingy-bajigs. And um, (laughs) I gave it like, I think I gave it like around 80-something percent for play. And I I remember really enjoying it. It was a good racing game mixed with a good stunt game. Mm. Yeah, really solid game. And um, 
Motorstorm Pacific Rift, which I think is like what possibly the highest score I gave this year to a game. That's not true. One of the ones in my top ten is, but I think I gave this ninety three percent. I really like it. I'm not as much of a racing game guy as I am some of the other genres. That's why I didn't make my top ten. But mm-hmm. Motorstorm, the first one, was like a good PS three showcase. Had like um, this Monument Valley uh, sort of like brown levels. This one really mixed it up by adding like beach levels and volcano levels and all these different inventive environments and. Um, Loads of good variety in the different vehicles you can drive, and uh, yeah, just just an all time great racing game. Um, so yeah, those are. I don't have loads more to say about those, Matthew. No, but, I just um, say yeah. it's just, it, it is a shame that I can't. It's hard to pinpoint the exact moment, but where like the kind of like the sillier, accessible kind of arcade racer sort of dies off in this generation, and it all becomes a little bit like simmy or sim light. Mm. Um, yeah, it's we're we're close to that time here, I think. Um, mm. You have a few years before you get start getting like good um, good Need for Speed games, but uh, yeah. What's your next one, Matthew? Uh, <laughs> Witcher Enhanced Edition, which I didn't make my list because it was, I don't like it enough. Also, I only played it in the last couple of years. I didn't actually play it in two thousand in two thousand eight. I remember at the time hearing about the Witcher, and you know what everyone hears about the Witcher is you collect playing cards with like nude women on them and it all sounds a bit salacious and grim um and i remember just writing off in my head as a sort of self-righteous young man being like oh well you know i'll never play that and i think actually the reputation of the witcher one also stopped me from getting into the witcher 2 which ends up being like i love the witcher 2 like i i it's all i think it's almost as good as the witcher 3 um this is a series which i really really love and in in the light of falling in love with witcher 2 and 3 i then went back and played witcher enhanced edition and it's it's naff it is tacky in in the way i said but there's some charm in seeing like those characters again and the fact that there is a sort of through line the same people keep peering back up and it's you know i finally understood some things in 2 and 3 a bit better um it's pretty like easy. They they I think they changed the fighting system for Enhanced Edition. It's 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 like quite arcadey. You just basically hold a mouse button. He does all this like twirling and kills everything on screen, which is quite fun. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm like I'm pleased I played it. I thought it was you know The Witcher One won't ever get really a mention in these podcasts otherwise. Um, but a, a little nod to it. Just don't like play it when your significant other walks in. And you're sort of ogling, well, you're not ogling, but you're looking at the, the nudie cards and you have to explain yourself. It's kind of embarrassing. I love the idea of um, 2008 era Matthew um, being uh, being snooty about The Witcher and being like, well, I'll just go back to watching Naruto then. Um, <laughs> I won't be partaking in your well, nudie like, no cards. One, no one wants their like public persona to be like, I'm really horny for these playing cards. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's true. That is true. Plus, you like, would that's, with and that would be like death in the office socially. You may <laughs> secretly think it, but you wouldn't say it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cool. That's uh, that's a good shout. I mean, I've always like I've always wrestled with uh, maybe I'll play other Witcher games, but then do I start with two or whatever? You say that two is the place to go. I think we discussed that in a previous episode. Yeah, but, two, um... yeah. Two, I, the, the weird thing about them is because they all sort of. You know, it's not a directly connected story. Like, there's great period. They're, they're almost like moments and adventures from Geralt's life. So you can kind of play them. If you play them in order, obviously, you get the accumulation of, like, you know, th- the relationships and everything. But, um, yeah, like, I played two quite happily without having played one. It was fine. Mm. All right. Good stuff. Yeah, good shout. I think um, it might be, it was for a while. It might be free if you um, sign up to a 
GOG Galaxy account or something like that. Um, oh, okay, it's quite it's very easy to get it for free. Basically, they give it away pretty frequently. So, um, yeah, I've got two more honourable mentions, Matthew. The first one I don't have loads to say about, which is actually one of the reasons it's not in my top ten. But um, Wipeout HD came out this year. This was basically the two original PSP games they'd made for uh, Wipeout, which were very good. Pure and Pulse, I think it was, combined into one HD package on PS3. Looked absolutely amazing. You can get it on PS4 now. It's a um, really nice version, just futuristic sort of um, racing game. Um, I'm not like the world's biggest Wipeout guy, but the uh, zone mode in this is fairly famous. Like the um, the entire colour of the track keeps changing as your speed increases, and it's kind of like... Uh, um, keep going for as long as you can before the speed becomes so unbearable that you can like no longer sort of like turn a corner properly without smashing your little um, flying car into the corners and stuff. Just a, <laughs> just a really, a, but a really, really like good, nice looking game. I've got um, fond memories of that one. And mm. then um, Devil May Cry Four is the um, the other one. So got quite close to putting this on the top ten. As I cycled through my top ten a bunch of times, I um, this did get into like the lower bit a few times, but. Can't say that I ever really fell in love with Devil May Cry 4 in the way that I did 3. It's uh, the one that introduced Nero, a sort of new playable character who had like a little kind of claw hand thing. And um, to be honest, I will confess to completely misunderstanding the fighting system of this game because I understand that like (laughs) there is a completely different moveset that you unlock with Nero when you uh, like do achieve certain parameters within the game. And that make him the most complex Devil May Cry character they ever they ever added. And me at the time, I did not. I evidently was not good enough to um to to uh, to master that as a reviewer. So I found him quite simple. He was kind of like use your claw hand, pull an enemy towards you, swipe them, etc. etc. But I understand there's actually like a lot of depth to this um hmm. this game that I missed. So uh, yeah, I just think it recycled environments too many times and bosses. There's a lot of repetition in this game. Devil May Cry 5 is a bit more my sort of flavour. But um, do you have any memories of this one, Matthew? No, I, I think I think there was a... Was there a demo of this on 360? Uh, probably. I mean, yeah, I yeah. think I played a demo of it, or I played the first... I, de- I definitely didn't own it. Um, I, I'm, I wasn't a big Devil May Cry person, really. I, you know, not having been a big PlayStation guy, it was never really my cup of tea. I loved the recent one. I really, really loved 5, and it made me think, oh, I should probably go back and explore this series in in more detail but yeah i i just remember it, again to keep bringing him up i i think i remember rich being quite down on this and I, I you know he was so super into this stuff that he was quite a big influence on like my playing habits and things of like oh well if he doesn't think it's much cop then i won't play it i think is what happened yeah wasn't um wasn't sort of uh like a massive favorite of mine even though i acknowledged that it was um yeah it was it was it was good it was just like uh, yeah, just didn't truly dazzle me. All right then, Matthew, kick off with your top ten. Let's uh, go with I'm number ten. Kick off as always. This is a heart list. Uh, it's games I loved. I'm going to kick off with a bit of an obscure, well, a slightly obscure one. I'm going to kick off with Fatal Frame Four: mm. Mask of the Lunar Eclipse, which came out on Wii in Japan this year. It didn't come out in the UK. Uh, came out eventually, a couple of years later, I think 2010, and. Uh, yeah, this was um, Fatal Frame is a series where you fight ghosts by taking photos of them, uh, made by Tecmo. This one was made between sort of Tecmo, Grasshopper, weirdly, Suda51's outfit, and Nintendo themselves. 
I thought this was tremendous, though other people are a little cool on it because it's got slightly wonky, awkward controls. What I loved about this is I thought production value-wise on Wii, it looked absolutely amazing. Like, it really blew me away. It was one of, one of the best-looking Wii games. Really, like, spooky, blue, moonlit kind of schools and orphanages and all the kind of classic stuff you get in J-horror games. It absolutely, like, scared the shit out of me, this game, um, again and again. And we've talked about this on the podcast, basically the, the death of proper horror games in terms of everything becoming clever rather than scary. This is just, like, spooky-ass ghosts jumping out, but it works brilliantly. Did you ever play this one or see this one played? No, it was one of those curios that um, I was always, because I knew it was Grasshopper, I was always like, oh, I bet that's kind of kind of good. But this series has honestly passed me by, but I um, recently yeah. moved up the first three on the um, P- on PS3, but um, never played this yeah. one, though. Same here. So I, you know, I haven't, I haven't got any like you know past relationship with the series at all, which is maybe why this one seems so effective to me. But it had uh, there's a couple of things I love about it. The core uh, photography mechanic it's quite arcadey. It's this sort of system where you basically have to like let the ghosts get quite close to you to take a picture. So you take more damage, like the better in frame they are. So it's got this like absolutely killer risk reward mechanic built in. But what they what they added, and if this is in previous games, apologies, but I'm pretty sure this is new to it, is they had these sort of like sort of context sensitive like reach segments where to like interact with things in the world, you have to hold a button and the animation would start playing. And if you let go of the button, the animation would retract. So like if you, there'd be like a dark hole, for example, and you'd have to hold A to reach your hand down and hold A and hold A as your hand went deeper and deeper to, to find an object at the bottom. And this was just such a great way of capturing that moment in films of like, oh God, is there going to be something there? Is there going to be something there? Like the scenes where you have to hold A to like slowly pull back curtains and you're like, oh no, I don't want to do it. And you let go of the button and the curtain and kind of draws back again um i thought this was so clever like it's so that's such a weird like cinematic thing it tapped into again ritual attest like when i was reviewing this i was just it was so scary even in japanese where i didn't understand a word of it i was just constantly having to take breaks from it and and put it down and leave it because it was freaking me out so much (laughs) um like i had to use like game FAQs or some translation guide to actually get through it because it was a lot of it's quite baffling like that sort of Silent Hill puzzle design of like find a random object here and use it over there on the other side of the map and if you don't know what you're doing it's just completely completely baffling I genuinely think that before PT this is one of the scariest things I've played Mm. well I actually looked it up while you were talking Matthew and this has never been released outside of Japan this game there was... Oh, okay. Uh, there must have been a. There was another Fatal Frame then. Oh, yeah. I think they remade two for the Wii. Mm. There was also a um, fan translation of this game released in 2010, which might be um, what you meant when you said the two years later thing. But um... ah, oh, that's maybe what I'm thinking of. I remember there being some reviews of this after the fact. That's why I thought it'd been re-released. People must have reviewed the fan patch. Um, well, there. Then all the more reason to pick up a copy if you can because you can translate it yeah i just you know again i put my hands up and say i haven't played the series so maybe this is just like well-trodden ground but i thought this was super scary and so good well it's pretty well reviewed like um it also has like fucking rad cover art as well like i would um i would i would totally play a game with uh with cover art that's got here but um mm. yeah yeah and yeah just really interesting the idea that 
co-directed by Cedar. That's um, yeah. Uh, I mean, like, it, there wasn't like a lot of that in there. It's not like you turn a corner and there's like a ghost taking a big old shit or anything. <laughs> you know, it's it, it it's like it's fully committed to like scared schoolgirl being spooked by like horrible J horror tropes. I mean, um, but that stuff were I I am like J horror like fucks me up more than anything. So. Um, I remember at yeah. the time I was convinced that it it made the Wii like the loading on this game not in game there was lots of loading but the, however it was like reading information like the the Wii made such a racket that I became convinced they'd done something deliberately with like where they put information on the disc to ensure that the Wii would rattle at certain points to be <laughs> like a scary thing I mean that is definitely not true but that's <laughs> like how much this game kind of spooked me that's what i thought they were doing <laughs> wow that's uh that's amazing i mean pour one out for suda whose um entire output has been reduced to a ghost shitting on a toilet i mean that, that's <laughs> well, like I your mean, assessment there's no of smoke without fire <laughs> <laughs> well that's your that's your uh, very um you know very kind of like uh empathetic um reading of his work uh, I like that it. and the ghost would have some dumb ass name <laughs> <laughs> oh good stuff uh, was the um the one they released a wii u any good matthew the um, Fatal Frame game. I don't know if I even played it. Oh, fair enough. I think it was released in Europe, but I don't. I don't think it got great reviews. But um... maybe that was the one I'm thinking of. The project. They definitely did a remake of two. Mm. Okay. Well, interesting stuff. Anyway, that's a really good shout. I mean, yeah, yeah it's no surprise to say it's not on my list. Actually, I will say I didn't really establish the rules of this uh, very well. So. The um, criteria is the game had to have been released um, in this year in Europe. So there are actually a couple of games that released in Japan this year or America that have not made the list, but will make like the 2009 list, for example. So number 10 uh, is The World Ends With You on DS for me. So That's my number nine. Oh, perfect. Well, there you go. So this is a very unusual RPG like uh, from Square Enix. It made the most of the DS you... Um, controlled one character with a d-pad and then the other with the touch screen two characters in this kind of like shadowy version of um shibuya in tokyo and um had all these cool looking tetsuya nomura uh sort of like um japanese teenagers um being quite moody and stuff and then it was kind of counting down to your death i believe the story wasn't it quite grim you were sort of pulled into this sort of weird game you may have been dead um <laughs> I can't remember the exact specifics, but you're yeah, you're involved in some like shadowy soul world game called the Reaper game. Mm. And you could sort of like when you went to like the Shibuya Crossing, you could um, hear people's thoughts and stuff when the NPCs walk past and stuff. And um, I liked that. But I was um, I was very fond of this game. Like it looked amazing for the DS. Like a really confident visual style. It actually feels like this is the sort of game Nomura would make if he wasn't sort of like. Um, stuck doing kingdom hearts and final fantasy forever this quite mm. contemporary sort of fashionable um you know uh sort of like japanese rpg and um i thought the way that it used the functionality of the ds was perfect so much so that i actually couldn't really envision playing this on the switch and stuff i understand that the mobile version they did that the um the the f- uh, female main character is basically like auto controlled and I like the fact that you had to kind of use the D-pad to like enter sort of inputs for her while yeah, also, it, yeah. like yeah the, the 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 DS is definitely a place to play this because otherwise yeah basically half the game gets boiled down to like basically a summon in battle mm, yeah so Matthew talk me through this one um, for you this must have been like a really nice surprise on Endgamer right it kind of um, really impressed a lot of people at the time yeah I mean yeah I, I just 
remember playing this and thinking like, wow, there's just, you know, nothing else like this. Or, uh, or, you know, I think I was aware of like Persona at the time and it, it kind of taps, you know, it ticks a lot of the same boxes as that. It kind of taps into like a very contemporary kind of trendy uh, Japanese adventure with this sort of supernatural element. I mean, it seemed, you know, as someone who hadn't been to Japan, but like I said, was very much a sort of Japanophile, you know, it just felt like, oh, wow, what, you know, this is, I imagine, you know, not it felt real, I mean, that's kind of dumb, this is super cartoony, quite like abstract world, but, you know, it had all these like brands in it, and I, th- I think it, it, it definitely uh, appeals to the same part of the brain as like a persona or a Yakuza, you know, it just feels like very authentic and like lived in, despite its kind of ridiculous elements. It had this like awesome J-pop soundtrack, mm. um, it's very 2008, like, you know, it's all, like, kids with, like, trendy MP3 players, and <laughs> it's, um, which I also had, you know, this was back in the age of my creative zen. <laughs> zen, I think it was. Yeah, this was just, this was just, you know, awesome. I mean, it felt like it didn't have much reach beyond Nintendo, you know, like, I don't think anyone else on the Mac played it. I remember playing it on DS. Um, the weird thing about, like, reviewing DS games is because they're never on a TV, like they're quite hard to share with people like no one ever gathers around to watch you playing a ds game so you can have these quite like profoundly entertaining experiences and then you you just have to say well trust me it's really good you know this thing i've been doing all week is really good but it's it's just not very it's kind of hard to show off in a very public way uh yeah i remember this one like you know wishing more people were into it because i thought it was just absolutely absolutely astonishing um, I loved all the collectible pins, like the battle systems built around like badges, which give you like different elemental powers. But there were like hundreds of the things. It was so customizable. It was so deep. This is such a good game, and it's never been as good as it was on DS. But mm. yeah, I'm so curious to see what they do with that follow up on Switch. I, I think it's cool that they've revisited it, and it was it did um, start like a very it started a really naff discourse actually of people saying like, um, oh, this game rips off Persona. And then, like, other people being smug and going, well, I think you'll find this game came out in 2008. And then people on Twitter being um, critical of that and saying, how dare you gatekeep with this? And I was just there thinking, oh, everyone needs to just go outside for a bit and go to a restaurant and calm down. That were, that really annoyed me. Yeah, yeah. It, it speaks to a certain, like... It, it, I can understand the feeling that this feels like it, like, belongs to you in some way. That you have this quite, like, you know, all oh, this really get this game really gets me. You know, it's quite kind of teenage It's sort of angst-filled. And this idea of, like, oh, it's special to me. And, you know, I don't necessarily, you know, I feel precious about how other people kind of handle it or think about it. I could maybe understand people, you know, in a similar way that I think they are with, like, Persona, for example. Yeah. It inspires a certain kind of fandom or it speaks to a certain kind of fan. Yeah, this was so. It was so good. Uh, like a, a rare light spot in 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 this quite dark year. Um, DS did a lot of heavy lifting for me in two thousand and eight. Yeah, that's um, that's fair enough. No, I like this game a lot too. Um, yeah, I think that even at the time though, I I felt like um, the teenagers in this were like way trendier than me, a man who was twenty. Oh. <laughs> um, and <laughs> yeah. I, I also like that the main character uh, Neku, I think he was. He never mm-hmm. never ever takes his headphones off when he's talking to people. And just seemed like a right little bastard, and uh, yeah. But um, it's interesting. The pin system felt like a bit of an evolution of um, uh, Kingdom Hearts Chain of Memories, which um, 
I believe this game was like a, kind of a sort of a successor to a game where you um, use cards to perform movements and stuff like that on GBA. Mm. But, um, yeah, I like this too. I, I think you're right. I can see why people kind of covet it. So um, I guess then, is it who's next then? Is it me? You're number yeah. nine now. Cool. Okay, my number nine, Matthew, is Little Big Planet. Now, Ooh, I don't okay. expect this to be on your list, but no. um, I think that uh, people are, like I know that Nintendo fans and people who are big on Nintendo platformers don't like this game in terms of it how it feels as a platforming experience. Um, mm. I think that the it's a really really nice co op game. I played a lot of this as my, with my little brother when I'm I lived in Bournemouth and he lived in Gosport and we um, would jump on and then just like uh, you kind of join each other in in each game and then you you basically can tour any level that any user created level um you can play in co-op which is quite a nice experience so um hmm. and some of the levels were also tailor-made for two players so you might need one player to stand on a switch while the other one um does something else and etc etc so obviously the whole thing with um little bit planet is like a, i think play create share was the whole thing anyone can build levels and anyone can share levels and um it got a really really good critical reception i would say over time like interest in it and excitement for it has faded like um the third little bit planet came out on uh ps4 and ps3 and it didn't seem to kind of generate much interest um the second one was um pretty acclaimed but um yeah for for whatever reason people aren't like as big on it as they were but um i did think this felt really kind of like fresh and different and there wasn't as big a community around it as a uh, maybe it sort of needed but i did like that a friend would tell me about like a level where it starts with you going into the mouth of a man having a shit and then <laughs> climbing through his gullet and then you have to and then you're told to grab onto something all the whole time the man is going with all these kind of like weird sound effects you grab on um, to a rocket-powered poo that flies out of his ass and, like, speeds down this kind of, like, pathway and lands in this toilet. Um, you grab... Sackboy grabs the chain and then loads of, like, little kind of, like, prize bubbles drop out of something above. Oh. And, like, it was a great bit of, like, physical comedy where it was like a it was like a Japanese level and someone, um, a friend, wrote down, like, the exact thing you need to search for to find it within, um, the, within the game. And, like... <laughs> It was quite. It was quite good for this, and I think that it also. Do you know that uh, Suda Fifty One made that level? <laughs> uh, so I like that. I like the campaign. I like that there was um, the same kind of like music and sound effects would pop up over and over again in people's player created levels. So things would get recontextualized. Like that, you'd hear that kind of like man groaning sound quite a lot in the main story, but then to hear it again of like a man having a shit. Um, mm. It was like a. It was. It must have been moderated in some way, but it felt like a mostly unmoderated kind of like um, wasteland of stuff. That meant there were a lot of shit levels, but you could sort it by like the top rated, and you could find like a lot of really good ones. Um, mm. So yeah, I was fond of it. But what's the Matthew Castle take on Little Big Planet? Yeah, I'm, I'm one of these very boring sniffy Nintendo fans. I think I, I, it doesn't matter how clever it is. It's a horrible platform. I hate the feel of it as a platformer. I, I think it's. Just terrible to play. Like the the weight of Sackboy's head. That three that three planes of movement thing just never ever made sense to me. I do not get it. And and I have no I have very little interest in user generated like making stuff myself. And when games are built on that I know this sounds hugely dismissive, this is just my personal psychology, is that uh 
I don't want to make stuff and I don't want to play a game where which shows me how clever and creative loads of other people are either. Like, I'm just not interested. That makes me feel bad about myself. <laughs> um, I just want, I want to play a game which someone else, a game developer has made that I can pay for and that's it, end of story. That's wow. the relationship I want. I don't want to know that there's some, like, genius 13-year-old who's completely remade Gears of War in Little Big Planet. I'm not interested. <laughs> I sort um, of... Uh, I, I think that um, the three planes of platforming thing, I do agree with you. That is weird. Like, it's... It is like, why not just make a 2D platformer when you can, like, yeah. grab onto stuff? But um, I just, just... I never I never got it. And I don't know. I don't really like Sackboy. I don't like his whole vibe. His big, stupid head. Um... <laughs> Like it's relatively low on my list, but it was there was a slight sense of this had to be good on PS3. Like um, I think people were kind of like willing it to be good, and I have yeah. no idea if it, I have no idea how much it got people into like actually designing levels and stuff because the tool was quite complicated in this. You still couldn't yeah. build anything that quickly. But um, I don't. Yeah, I. <sighs> I don't for a second think it's a bad thing. It's just, it's just so not for me. Like, it's in a similar way. Like, I don't play Dreams, but I can admire Dreams as this amazing tool. You know, I get it, but it's just it's just not my cup of tea. I'm just not interested in making stuff in a game, yeah. personally. But I don't begrudge you putting it in your list. No, it's fine. It's, and it's, it's, you know, it's very much a kind of heart choice. I don't... I, I actually do think that the, as a platform, it was a really, like, fun little campaign. But um, nonetheless, mm. um, that's um, that's my piece on Little Big Planet. So what's your next one, Matthew? Super Smash Brothers Brawl. Mm, not on my list. Relatively low down on my list. It's a game that I loved playing at the time, but... Yeah, called on it. Like, it, it definitely didn't have the legs of the other Smash Brothers. You know, I don't know if that's to do with a change in circumstances. The fact that, you know, I wasn't working on magazines when the first one came out. You know, I was at school. And when Melee came out, again, I was at college. And I had loads of time to play this with my brother. And, you know, we just played it and played those games to death. I do think, like, I played less of Brawl because, you know... I now had lots of other stuff I had to play for work. I do think it is a weaker Smash Brothers. I think its levels designs aren't as fun. I think this began to like the the trend towards like quite simple platform formations sort of floating in front of like amazing Nintendo backgrounds where I think in the earlier games the first two it felt a bit more like like the locations felt like the places you were meant to be in like Hyrule Castle was this quite complicated kind of oh it wasn't the temple was it the temple ruins where you know this this these vast levels with lots of like hidey holes and things where it became a bit kind of it felt like it was becoming a bit more purer you know something that they then went all out on obviously in the 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 most recent ones where there's basically like a battlefield formation for every level which just strips it right back and it just says it just treats it like a fighting game this is kind of halfway house between that. Um, you know, obviously all the characters there did were, you know, really good fun. You know, a huge roster, um, a lot to love on that front. I thought the actual, like, structure of the game was a bit off. Like, the single player, uh, the, the story mode they added, Subspace Emissary, is terrible. And it's the, it's the worst thing in any Smash Brothers game by far. I mean, I, I, you know, it lost points because it had that mode and I hated it so much just junk trying to do like a scrolling platformer with like smash brothers mechanics terrible idea terrible and it's bonus score attack modes uh, it was a shame that they they stopped uh in melee like every character had like a mo- like a target smash built for them and in brawl it was just a generic target smash i always thought that was a big disappointment it's little things like that i thought there was just a few cut corners here it began to feel less special 
but then that is balanced out by the fact that like it is just the most you know like this is the one where they went mad with the soundtrack and it had like 300 tracks and it was all you know they got new composer you know composers in to like write new versions of like other games tracks you know it has like 50 you know like the basically the creme de la creme of like japanese composers all riffing on each other's work it's absolutely amazing soundtrack i mean like probably the best thing about the game that's obviously a trend that's continued though i downloaded the whole soundtrack onto my pc at work (laughs) and basically it's what i wrote endgamer to for the next three years and like different periods of those three years i was into like different bits of the soundtrack this is why there was a weird period where i got like super into the sonic stuff (laughs) (laughs) uh which is just a abysmal kind of well you know that kind of rocky with lyrics that basically sing the plot to the games which are always really baffling about so lots of lyrics about collecting rings um which is odd yeah, um, and the one I remember is um, "What goes up must come down." Where you oh, yeah, can touch the ground. I remember that one. Um, that's Sonic Heroes. Right, yeah, it was the, it was the, Heroes. It was the yeah. PS2 one. Yeah, yeah, I yeah I just uh, it had the Metal Gear sound bits on there, so it had like the calling to the night and all that stuff. Um, oh, this soundtrack as a disc. Forget the game, just buy it as a soundtrack. It's amazing. But uh, yeah, otherwise it just yeah just didn't have the sticking power that the other ones had for me. Yeah, so I I might have put, I would have put it in my honourable mentions, but I um I knew that you'd bring it up at some point, and I think that because this was like my first proper Smash Bros game that I sort of owned and played a lot, I did appreciate it more. I think because you actually come at this and without that kind of prior experience and maybe knowing some of the details like you do, and it feels like such a massive package of stuff because obviously they had built on the roster with all of these quite novel additions like um, Snake, obviously, and Sonic, and also the Pokemon trainer. I thought it was a really good, a really great fun character, the Pokemon trainer. I was very fond of that, switching between the three different Pokemon. I thought it was a really cool mechanic. And then on top of that, you also have, you know, all of these original levels they built for this game, but then they had the bonus of adding all of those GameCube levels as well. Like a bunch of the melee ones were in there, so yes, yeah, so, yes, yeah, so it, yeah, it did, it did have them. Um, but I just thought like they showed up the relative weakness of like the newer, the newer levels. I thought that that's probably fair in some cases. I always find it really weird that they had, the Sonic level in this is really weird. The Green Hill Zone one, where like there's that bit in the middle that keeps collapsing and rebuilding. Like I thought. I didn't really get what they were going for with that, and it just made that level quite irritating, I thought. Um, but then I did really like the Metal Gear one, where Metal Gear Rex like just smashes through that door at one point, and then, yeah, it just has a kind of real sort of heightened drama to it. Plus, um, it was fun to play, like, say, the GameCube levels. Like, I, I hadn't played, like, Big Blue before, the F-Zero level, which is really, like, the probably the best, my favourite level in the... Um, in any of the games and so yeah i think yeah that, yeah it's it's like it, it was it was actually like a really great bit of fan service even if you don't like i know it's not considered like the best of this series by um that audience but um i don't know like you say at a time where maybe nintendo wasn't at its best it was an amazing package oh, yeah. for celebrating nintendo you know yeah and it feels like i'm looking at gift horse in the mouth a bit i mean it was this amazing nintendo celebration i just i think i had i had this problem with a few games uh, particularly the multiplayer games on Endgamer in the early years and it's why maricott we didn't make the list that came out in 2008 as well which just i had such a massive relationship with certain series like before i started the job that 
I really did bring a lot of baggage to the reviews, and I felt like like Mario Kart Wii. It just it's so bad compared to like how much multiplayer fun I had with um, Double Dash. Mm. And, uh, you know, I talked about this in reviews I got wrong. Like, I wasn't happy with my Mario Kart review. You know, I, I kind of absolutely softballed it and gave it, like, a decent score. Um, but in hindsight, like, I don't rate it at all. Smash Brothers wasn't as severe by any means. But I did, you know, like, when I was reading about my review, I was like, man, does this actually, does, does some of this stuff matter? You know, does it matter that there's these weird tweaks to the single-player content? Does anyone actually give a shit? You know, I gave a shit at the time, but now I'm like, eh... Maybe maybe I should have just acknowledged that this was fundamentally going to be a game that everyone just played in multiplayer, and here were a load of great characters. It had enough of the good stages. I liked, you know, all the crazy new items. This is the game that added the final smash, which we... Uh, I, I remember, like, you know, liking at the time, the kind of the mad rush for the super powerful power-up where you basically nuke everyone. Mm. Yeah, I played a lot of this in the office with Rich. We swore a lot. Publishers kept coming over and telling us off for being too loud at lunchtimes, which I thought was super rich, considering like every lunchtime for into, up until that point, all you'd ever hear is is the PSM and OPM boys roaring at Pez. <laughs> I still thought we were pretty polite and quiet compared to them, but apparently not. It's, it's just the, the way of it, you know. I, I guess the the sweariness and the volume actually speaks to the strength of Smash Brothers. Um, <laughs> Well, I will say as well that I um I, I I don't think you're necessarily wrong about Subspace Emissary. I don't think it's like great, but I don't think there's ever been a good single player Smash Bros element. Like I, I don't I actually I probably slightly prefer Subspace Emissary to that one in the um in uh, Ultimate where you're just walking down those like endless roads having endless battles with like shadow oh. versions of characters. That doesn't do loads to me apart from the cool references. It doesn't That's do loads. That's the thing the re- it's the references but like I I I like that one. As a structure, I think it's I think it's super fun and nerdy. That 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 like tickled me as a as a as a big Nintendo nerd. But yeah, maybe you're right. You know, who judges single player game? Who judges fighting games on their single player mode? It seems mad, but you know. Hmm. Good choice. Maybe I should have put that in my top ten now. Kind of slightly regret it, but oh well. Sackboy gets. Also, in. it added Pit. I really liked Pit. That's the other thing. He mm. was good. Oh, well, good stuff, Matthew. So it's my number eight, right? Yeah. Cool. So my number eight is a pure heart choice. It's Crisis Core Final Fantasy VII on the PSP. Oh. Which um, I actually like. Um, almost made my honourable mentions until last night when I made a quick change and just added it to the list because I thought I couldn't really sum up my year of games for this year without mentioning this game. So this is an action game spin-off of Final Fantasy VII. This is around the time that Square Enix was doing the compilation of Final Fantasy VII, which was... Um, some mostly coolly received like um, movies, and you know uh, the Vincent spin-off Dirge of Cerberus that no one liked. The um, third-person shooter. This was the best part of it, though. This was a spin-off about Zach, who was basically Aerith's boyfriend, and like Zach's. Uh, so he was like Cloud's buddy. You kind of learn about him in FF7. He plays like a minor role, but um, weirdly, um, this is like a slight spoiler, I guess, um, for Final Fantasy VII Remake, so um, skip this if you uh, haven't played that yet. But this game ends up being enormously significant to the plot of that game. Basically, the ending of this game is, is at the end of FF7 Remake, which is quite bizarre because there's no reference to Crisis Core before that. Mm. But anyway, it's a third-person action game. It was a bit, a little bit Kingdom Heartsy, I suppose, as a kind of action game. Had this like mad, like casino slot style, um, kind of like bonus system where it would constantly be running these kind of like slots in the background, and then every now and then, when it hit a number, like a 
a summon would join in or like um you do a special attack or whatever and you couldn't control it so it was randomized which means it's not like an amazing system but it did mean that fights would constantly have this sense of um scale when uh, like a summon would arrive or like you do like this big attack animation and stuff like that i think they succeeded in making translating the fairly static nature of final fantasy battles to this quite large scale um exciting and um, real-time combat so i liked it i think that um the story is pretty good as well like uh basically it ends where if you've um, played final fantasy 7 you'll know that zack dies he gets killed by a bunch of shinra soldiers the way this game does that is very sad and very effective you kind of like know that ending is coming and so you um you're kind of building up to it and the game gets very melancholy in its last is, third is this the rogue one of final fantasy i guess it is yeah i guess it is I actually think that Halo Reach, I, I I guess I have no way of proving this, but I feel like Halo Reach took its like final idea of like you make a last stand knowing that you'll never win from this game, mm. which does that exact thing like three years earlier. Because that is how the game basically ends, is like you are facing like an endless, endless waves of Shimra soldiers until you you lose in game and then you watch a horrible cutscene of Zack being like shot to death on this cliff. It's really quite like <laughs> quite grim. Um <laughs> There's like, thing is though, I don't think this is like an amazing action game. There's quite a good Retronauts episode about this um, game actually, which made me think, well, it probably, the fact that I like it is all all to do with like, um, I was massively into Final Fantasy at the time. So the fact that it was um, this high end um, cinematic game really sort of appealed to me. But I do think it's got some shortcomings. It's, um, Zack is a bit of a Mary Sue character. He doesn't have that, he doesn't really have any flaws he's sort of maybe like the one flaw he arguably has is he's too trusting of shinra his employer and that's what ultimately kills him maybe that's arguably Mm. a flaw but he's a very like nice cheerful sort of presence the way it kind of like brings cloud and sephiroth into the story is really good too it also commits the slight sin of uh i know that anime movies tend to be set between like episodes of tv shows and bring in like a guest character who's like who you know will not be in it by the end of the story Mm. and this does this does that a little bit by introducing characters who weren't previously part of final fantasy 7 law but um right i like this game matthew i've rambled about it enough do you have any um any thoughts uh, or- no i it, I, sh- I should have played it at the time i remember a few people raving this about this to me and thinking oh yeah you know i haven't really got anything else to play on my psp so i should do that mm. i think that um this uh, this and god of war actually do show quite nicely how the what the psp could do that the ds couldn't do um mm. in terms of like you know just capturing that console game size spectacle on a um on a handheld yeah did it very well so uh yeah that's my piece on crisis core matthew mm. but um what's your number seven uh my number seven is no more heroes that's higher on my list whoa okay let's oh. jump to your number seven okay so civilization revolution is my number se- my number seven did you uh, is this on your list no i have never played this so please fill me in well that's a shocker because i thought that a Civ game that you could play on DS would have been like Prime Matt Castle thing, but then you tell me that thing about Advance Wars, which makes me think that maybe strategy. Yeah, yeah. I'm secretly thick. That's my problem. <laughs> uh, so I can't play these. I think Nick reviewed this. Nick was super into Civ games, so he reviewed it. Yeah, so um, this is actually one that um, a listener mentioned on Twitter, and then it kind of reminded me of how much I enjoyed it. So. It was basically Civ is obviously this PC legacy series, um, very quite complex uh, strategy game. You um, build a civilization, kind of like the, I guess like the time before Christ, and then um, you over time sort of uh, develop and build, uh, sort of like build up like a market and 
add different bits to your to your towns and your cities you uh, expand and grow more cities you build roads between your different cities basically building an entire functioning civilization you encounter other civilizations you can declare war etc i'm sure everyone listening knows what civ is this game boiled all of that down to basically be playable on a console it's the only time they've done this um actually i think that the most recent um civ game you can play on um console which is really bizarre i've no idea how that Mm. works but um Anyway, this was um, this was purely made for consoles. They designed the interface from scratch to work with um, PS3 and 360. And then the um, DS game is exactly the same, just like visually very simple. Actually, has a bit of a kind of like a school textbook vibe. The um, DS one, quite cartoony, and um, very silly caricatures of um, political figures, which is something that Civ always does. And um, while this is definitely not as complex as the PC one, you can break the game by basically like building as many towns as quickly as possible building markets then having so much money that you can just endlessly churn out military units to go and conquer other cities um which is was always my strategy it was a really nice little distillation of civ i actually think you would have really loved the ds version of this i'm um, yeah, yeah i i don't know why i haven't played it i'll remedy this okay to ebay oh yeah well it's not very expensive on ebay it's like six quid but um yeah oh. i liked it so um what's your number six matthew uh my number six is fallout three that's higher on my list <laughs> Whoa, okay, what's your number six? Uh, my number six is Dead Space. Oh, not on my list. Really? Wow. I didn't even make your on your honourable mentions either. Were you not a Dead uh, Space guy? No, I don't mind it. I just, yeah, tell, tell me about it. Why, why do you dig it so much? Okay, so Dead Space, obviously, like, this was around the time that EA briefly um, f- made a foray into creating, like, original games. Um, they were known as the... Um, FIFA people, and they made lots of terrible um, 6 out of 10 Bond tie-ins that Matthew bought. Um, <laughs> yeah, generally speaking, they didn't have a good re- reputation. I would say that EA's reputation is still very up and down in terms of how they're mm. perceived um, for various reasons. But this was a very kind of like dyed-in-the-wool hardcore game. It's a, a survival game that's... Uh, sorry, survival horror that's like a also a third-person action game. And it's a really, really refined sort of like blockbuster feeling game set in a kind of um, alien type setting, like an, a, an abandoned space station, basically. And um, you go around using your, um, you see this basically like this cutter tool, this plasma cutter to um, fire like the limbs off of these like um, monsters that attack you. They, all of the creatures in the game look like something from the thing. They're all just like these quite fucked up looking like humanoid things. Mm. And um, you have these different powers like um, sort of being able to like lift, it- using like a gravity powers to like lift enemies or items. And you can do this to solve puzzles and stuff like that. Generally speaking, I think it's just a really good like meat and potatoes like survival horror game made for this age like a post resident evil 4 game in this genre there there weren't many of them around Mm. and it was just really a really really like rock solid um version of this type of thing did you have any thoughts on it at the time matthew yeah i did i did i did start playing it i think i borrowed it off someone to see if it was gonna be like my kind of jam and it was just a little bit too like intense for me i think at the time Uh, because it's you know it's quite fast survival horror like they're not shambling zombies you know when when the things jump out they really come at you you know a brilliant bit of sci-fi as well like the design of the ship and how like industrial it is i mean you know it's got the obvious like alien kind of sort of similarities but i feel like it really kind of commits to this sort of hulking interior and it's a daunting place to be in and you feel like very alone yeah i just found this like super stressful it wasn't until like years later that i like properly played through it um i think just before dead space 2 came out actually 
because I thought, oh, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna get on this bandwagon and and, and really stick with it this time. Yeah, it's not that I dislike it at all. I, um, I don't know, it just didn't really pop into my head when I was making my list. Well, it's, this is actually like the opposite of a hard choice. Like, I don't think I, I have no like real affection for the story in this game or mm. the um, main character or or any of that stuff. I none of that really applied. I just thought it was a really really good solid game it felt like they'd taken yeah. like years to make this game you know what i mean get well, everything right yeah and it was like, it definitely like an interesting period of ea who up until now yeah like you say were like sports licenses and movie licenses and they suddenly had this slate of like quite weird stuff yeah um between this i guess like what they were doing with battlefield being like kind of going up against cod a bit more traditional like mirror's edge things like that like it, it, it felt like experimental ea kind of comes in waves but they go big on it, then they all bomb, then they don't do it for a couple of years, and then they'd go big on it again, all the while kind of paying for it with their sort of sort of generic stuff in between. Yeah, um, it's really hard to tell where they're at these days. I feel like they're kind of maybe kind of entering another period like that, perhaps, yeah. um, but you can't really tell. Yeah, also uh, Boom Blocks, wasn't that one of theirs around this time too? Yeah, um, that was that was good. I contemplated talking about that, but yeah, like that weird sort of jengery thing, which was... Um, sort of you know executive produced by spielberg we did a feature in a, a kind of a funny page in the mag i say funny we did a page <laughs> in the mag of like you know or you may be surprised that spielberg's involved in boom blocks but actually if you go back to his old films you'll remember that you'll, you'll actually see the connective tissue a bit more clearly and then it was just a load of screenshots from spielberg films with boom blocks very poorly photoshopped <laughs> into them that's a good Which, ja- uh, gag. That's a good gag. Yeah, but it was like you know, like Indian, you know, the, the the idol on the pedestal at the start of Raiders of the Lost Ark, except it's fucking boom blocks. Yeah, um, I suppose like you pick your films as well. Like he wouldn't do it with Munich, I assume. Um, you know. Well, I think I don't think there was a Schindler's List one. Ah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> magazines. What a wild west, eh? Ah, uh, two thousand and eight. <laughs> We didn't know what we were doing. We were in our 20s and 30s. Um, Yeah, okay. So that's uh, Dead Space, Matthew. What's your number five? Geometry Wars Retro Evolved 2. Not on my list. Oh, this was fantastic. Uh, Again, like a big sentimental choice. Um, Sharing that flat, both me and Rich Stanton were super into this. We played this loads on the TV in the living room, specifically the pacifism mode, which is the mode where you can't shoot and you sort of... um, there are these like floating gates on this sort of 2D top-down grid and you pass through the gates and it makes an explosion and that's how you kill that's how you kill the enemies in that mode if these exploding gates we played that mode so much i mean we became slightly manic about it the um the gates that you pass through they had these sort of like weird sort of um designs on the end of each gate which looked a bit like do you know those honey dipper sticks i do yes yeah it looked like those, and because of that, it like we used to call it like I think it was like going to Honey Town or something. Whenever you went through the gate, <laughs> and it was just us shouting all this bullshit about honey the whole time, which really made me laugh. And when I saw the name of this game, whenever I see this game or a screenshot of this game, I always think of that, and it makes me laugh. Of like just us doing stupid high school one-upmanship on uh, on Geometry Wars in the living room, like, a beautiful sequel grew out geometry wars in 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 so many you know so many interesting modes had some like really famous xbox achievements that we were desperate to get there's one in uh pacifism where you basically have to do a a loop you have to slide along the edges of the screen twice and you have to do like a f- two full circuits at the edge of the screen i think it's wax on wax off it's called 
and we were just endlessly trying to get this and it was really hard and um like just a great hd era game with these exploding pixels the crazy light of it a really pure arcade game um i think it also like it this was part of the like the xbla summer of arcade Mm. um which was like the big sort of promotional push where xbox picked a a few like big hitter arcade games i think this summer it was uh retro evolve 2 braid castle crashes and something else which escapes me but they you know it was this idea it was it felt like they were curating their indie games a bit more than they are now where it's just like a total free-for-all and like it felt like they you know whether rightly or wrongly they picked out a few who were like the anointed few and they were spectacular like the summer of arcade was was cool like it was something i really looked forward to because it meant like oh you're gonna get some great indie games and they were like eight quid or whatever so yeah a good time a good a good you know my favorite of the xbla games at that time uh yeah i loved it oh yeah so i i was big into the um sort of summary of arcade thing as well because obviously it doesn't stop other developers from releasing stuff around that but hmm. um, i looked it up and the other games around this time were gallagher legions and bionic commando rearmed which is very acclaimed game oh, um, yeah yeah which I liked, but um, I, yeah, not enough to put on my list. But um, mm. yeah, I thought it was um, it was good. I actually um, this passed me by a little bit, Geometry Wars. But um, you um, mentioning achievements there does remind me of what how weirdly obsessed I became with those. I think it was the perfect match for a young man with too much time on his hands and a kind of yeah. slightly compulsive brain. That was like you know, um, well, yeah, yeah, and in, in like when you work on you know games magazines or a media company you're surrounded by like enough people who are also interested in those things that you can get like quite a nice little competitive ecosystem like going within Mm. so like you're never gonna have more achievements than like some hardcore gamer who's sitting at home just churning these things out but like you might be able to do better than like some of your mates at work and so there, there was quite a nice communal sense, like, lo- you know, uh, friend leaderboards in games at the time, like, really felt like they meant something. Like, now, when I play a game on my Xbox One, it's so rare that, like, even a couple of friends have also played that game to for, like, leaderboard stuff. But back then, those modes kind of did kick in a lot more often, um, mainly because Matt Pellet on, offic- on Xbox World 360 was, like, a demon at games and would basically dominate everything. Um, he had like the biggest gamer score. He was always at the top of the leaderboards for every game, but un- under that, the competition was a bit healthier. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like um, Hitman's the only modern example I can think of that. Um, yeah, where it's really it's, like, yeah, it's so great when that kicks in. Like, I love, I love that. You know, I think yeah, that that kind of score competition could be can be a really cool thing. But you know, getting enough people at the same place with the same mindset it's actually surprisingly hard. Yeah, you know, um, one thing I will say for this, I, I didn't play Geometry Wars too, but I do feel like the um, this was a time where we were getting that first like wave of revivals of these like classic types of games for this mm. era, and I think maybe we were slightly more receptive to them or excited about them than we are now, where a lot of different, what well, we've experienced several waves of different genres finding like a second life and. I felt like a twin twin stick shooters just felt suddenly it was suddenly quite exciting to play one uh, like you say in HD looking really nice and um mm. having a slightly different flavor tonally to the older ones um yeah good choice so my number 5 Matthew is Fable 2 is that higher on your list it's higher on my list thought it would be yeah so what's your number 5 uh, number my four? number 4 is Professor Layton and the Curious Village 
not on my list. So, um, yeah, <laughs> do your thing about the beige tube man. <laughs> the beige tube man. This was the birth of the beige tube when he first slurped out of the hat. This was, yeah, like a, a, a really interesting spin on the kind of more like casual side of DS. I and mean, it, it wasn't a touch generation game. I don't remember it being like branded with the touch generation stuff, which was like the more kind of, you know, your kind of brain training or whatever. Um, but I thought this was a, an ingenious way of kind of taking the vibe of brain training, which was it basically took a load of puzzles, sort of logic puzzles um, from a, a Japanese series of puzzle books written by a guy called Akira Tago or Tago. I don't know. Who it was, um, and wrapped them up with like quite a compelling mystery animated world where you're this sort of Holmesian detective, Professor Layton, with a sidekick, Luke, a little boy. It's never really explained the nature of that relationship. It's kind of baffling. You go to this sort of curious village and you solve mysteries. Everyone there kind of is constantly asking you to solve puzzles to get like the next bit of information out of them. It's a very linear story, um, but like a triumph of framing, I'd say, this taking these puzzles, which maybe in isolation might have been a bit dry, wrapping them up with this narrative gorgeous production values you know these sort of animated cutscenes, this soundtrack which was very sort of uh kind of sort of accordion very sort of like sort of european uh, reminded me a great deal of the animated film belleville rendezvous which was quite big at the time you know yeah a very like an unusual take but just delivered with like pure class uh this really put level five on my radar and they had made stuff before this um you know they're quite a prominent studio in 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 the early noughties um but this was like next level and it was just huge and you know birthed this this chain of six games which you know i'm very affectionate for most of them i think all told curious village is probably my second favorite one my favorite latent game will probably come up in a later episode but it's a good story yeah i love the you know the touchscreen interface uh, was perfect for the kind of puzzle input. Uh, it's really a, a really great thing. Yeah, this was um, a big enough game that, uh, like on the kind of import scene, that I bought it on one of my trips to America because it released in the US yeah. in early 2008, but it released at the end of the year in the UK. So, mm. And obviously this was the time, um, like pre-Brexit, where the um, pound was like, you could get like... Um, two dollars to a pound yeah oh it was amazing it was amazing um yeah and so buying ds games when you're on like a us trip was actually quite a good thing to do because you were spending about like 18 quid on a game instead of 25 quid or whatever um Mm. so i remember buying this and being very impressed it's funny because when we did did our episode where you um coined the famous beige tube um quote um you did say that everyone else at Leighton meets is quite normal and i played this game a little bit last year actually um during like lockdown madness and um this whole town is filled with people who are like it's a potato with a face like uh, <laughs> there's some really fucked up looking people in this town yeah um, i don't know where that came from that bait that was just bad analysis in that previous episode <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a really You're right yeah P- potato face monstrosities <laughs> um <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I really like the puzzles in isolation. I think that, like you say, the idea that it's like an overarching plot mixed with these standalone puzzles makes it a really perfect like handheld game. You can just do a puzzle or two, wander around, you know, talk to people, then just save your game, and then get off at your train stop or whatever. And mm. it was really perfect for that. 
it's funny because I think over time I I sort of called on the fact that Leighton was positioned so firmly. Uh, I guess like these sort of more I don't want to say casuals, but you know like people who have bought a DS because the advertising campaigns and like bought brain training and then bought Professor Leighton. Mm. It kind of became kind of. I don't want to say kind of co-opted by them because that sounds a bit gatekeepery, but it just it yeah. it felt it felt less like a hardcore sort of like DS thing, I guess. Um, yeah, but yeah, that doesn't stop the game from being very good though, and it do, it does yeah. look very nice. Uh, definitely in the pages of Endgamer, like we really took to like the weirdness of Layton. Like it may have been true that it was very popular with like mums, but it was also like weird. Like Layton is quite a weird looking dude. You know the whole stuff with Luke. There's like a weird, there's weird humor in it. They've they've got quite surreal mini games. They definitely get like more ambitious and stranger as they go on. Um, they've got absolutely ludicrous twists. Every single one of these games, uh, they end with just complete like like if you saw it in a film or TV show, you'd probably storm out the cinema. You know, like absolutely just the dumbest things. But yeah, I I, I thought there was definitely a strand of like core gamer weirdness to them um that that i don't know Leighton was a very key end gamer figure it felt like he was a perfect fit for us it's like a feat of localization this game as well because it's got the um three layers of hints uh system where you spend a coin to unlock a kind of hint and then if you still can't solve it you can do it two more times and the hint the basically the last hint is almost the answer and that must have been really hard to like localize in a way that didn't sort of spoil the puzzle or upset the kind of like exactly what the clues were in the original text um yeah yeah i think they they actually you know as they went on or maybe even in this one like some of the puzzles they actually changed because they were like reliant on you know japanese wordplay or very specific cultural references that didn't make any sense Hmm. so they were very like careful with this stuff you know very you know they were very heavily involved in in that process of of um yeah, bringing them over and and being careful with them, and even like you know, there was a big, there was a bit of a criticism at this one, or the criticisms that were leveraged at the first game was that sometimes the wording could seem a bit unfair or obscured the real solution, and they got better at it. Like they noticeably, the games felt generally fairer as they went on, and you know, by like the third or fourth entry, they were really like you know they they were really nailing it again and again. Um, yeah, I I kind of sad that Leighton has sort of died a bit, you know. After after the original six, you know, it felt like it was never big as big on 3DS, which is more to do with 3DS not being as big, I guess. And then they made a, a not a very good spin off for uh, uh, smartphones, which then became a I think it's a Switch game. The it's like where you play as um, it's not Leighton's daughter. It's like some family relative, like her niece or something. But it's just it's guff. It was it was really bad. Yeah, I felt like there was a moment there where level five were huge, and now now I don't really know what they're making. No, um, they were they were they were like, yeah, a real success story. While specifically in those like end gaming years, we were mad about them. Everything they made was just so polished, so like AAA, and and they were like, you know, the charts in Japan. It was always a battle between like Nintendo first party and level five games. Like they were so prominent, mm. um, and now they're yeah, it's all a little bit like you know, Nino Kuni 2 and not a lot else. What so, is your number four? It is No More Heroes on the Wii, Matthew. Oh, there we go. So I actually wasn't familiar with um, Studios Games before this, but this kind of looked like my sort of thing based on like the, the sort of weird California setting. 
the kind of like ludicrous premise of basically a nerd trying to impress an attractive lady by climbing in a, a rank of um like a ranking of assassins and then the fact that it had these very like stylized boss fights um like these really distinctive boss characters and um the fights themselves were also um were all unique too and um mm. that combined with the fact that the Wii controls were really my sort of thing so this is a game where you do use the action buttons to do most of um most of the stuff in the game like um hitting an enemy and moving and stuff like that and instead you use the uh, motion controls to perform finisher moves or special moves and mm. i think that was a really great creative choice because it means that when you kind of like you can hit an enemy with your um beam katana basically a lightsaber a bunch of times and then at the end you get a prompt to like swipe the wemo and then um travis touchdown your main character would like cut through an enemy and um and kill them um and that felt like a really well conceived combat system to me like it wasn't quite capcom level in terms of its complexity mm. but felt really really good it was like waggle like you waggle where it counts basically yeah which is a really good choice because i think like you know there were just there were so many wii games that either overdid it or didn't do it enough and this kind of felt like it found a happy medium looked really nice as well and uh this kind of like not quite cell shaded but this just a very distinctive like comic booky style um mm. and uh, i really like the kind of like lazy santa monica vibes of the open world even though the open world isn't there's not like much to it you just kind of like mm. drive from like shops to your really naff little motel room and i don't know but but there's a real flavor to it and um, i think we discussed this in a previous episode when the second one removed the open world stuff it did lose something um mm. this kind of like i think it was just maybe it was just being like uh a really nerdy like early 20s man with no girlfriend um playing this game about basically uh, you know me um but more reprehensible <laughs> maybe that's part of the appeal what do you reckon yeah i i think so um yeah i i thought this used the wii in all the right ways like you say the 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 waggle kind of hits where it counts it used the wii remote speaker when she phones you up I'd played some. I'd played uh, Killer Seven before, which was like my introduction to Suda. Uh, no More Heroes is like mechanically, hands down, his best game. I mean, it's it's the Suda Fifty One game. I think you can just play and play, and and it just makes the most sense. It's like it's mad as shit, but it's also very coherent. Um, I think weirdly, all his games became a lot more playable after this, but maybe weren't as interesting or were a bit more conservative or a bit try hard in certain ways um this was like a perfect middle meeting point of like pseudo madness from before and the kind of more playable pseudo that came after great characters great style i assume you played the european version without blood uh yes i guess i did um yeah they always really bugged me like the, like some people were down in europe because they felt like they were being shortchanged because the u.s version had blood when you killed people hmm. but i thought the kind of exploding pixel style played perfectly with its like abstract take on the world you know yeah that this is like a, this is like a guy who sees everything as a video game that just makes made more sense yeah i never, um, I never really felt like i was missing out from that yeah, yeah. I no, the the characters are really good. Like the bosses are all really well thought out conceptually, and like you know, it's sort of um, it's funny because um, the Scott Pilgrim books were releasing around this time, and they're actually quite similar conceptually. Mm. Um, but I think that I don't know this. 
it just it really sort of um really spoke to me this game just and also just like an unashamedly hardcore Wii game at a time where I guess there weren't that many was that significant yeah. to you on Endgamer? Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, like we we weren't big on this. Like we never did a cover for this one. Um, but yeah, I remember like this was published by Rising Star and they were very big on Wii and DS. They had they had loads of stuff and we I felt like we were always going over to their offices to see things and they were quite a small little outfit, but yeah, they 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 had some good stuff. Um they did a press event for this. Um I didn't go to it, they did an interview with him where basically you had to interview him sitting on the toilet <laughs> in his hotel room. Um because, you know, in this game you save your game by taking a shit. And I think it was Alex Dale who went to do this for us as a freelancer. And when he got to the train station, because you ride a motorbike in game, they took him to the event, like, on the back of a motorbike, driving really fast through London traffic. I think it traumatised him. <laughs> um, so, yeah, like, super full-on in every way. you got to love No More Heroes. I, I adore it. And I, I, um, I'm totally going to buy those um, Switch versions when they drop the price a bit. They're a bit too pricey for me at the moment. Um, mm. But I'm, I'm well up for playing these again before the third one comes out. Yeah, I love this game. Yeah, Rising Scar, a Star, what a really interesting little... Um, some of the stuff they were putting out at this time was, was really cool. So, what's your number three, Matthew? My number three is Tomb Raider Underworld. Not on my list. Which probably won't come as a surprise if you've listened to our last couple of best of episodes because i really really rated tomb raider and uh, tomb raider legend i really rated tomb raider anniversary tomb raider underworld is for my money the best tomb raider hands down like it's it's the best the series has ever been a proper platformer it's not auto platforming she's got laura cross got a really gymnastic move set and basically all the set pieces in this game are giant platforming puzzles doesn't really do boss fights it's got some terrible combat admittedly but it introduced a system where you could basically dial down like the like combat difficulty specifically within you know you could keep everything you know keep puzzle difficulty the same but turn down enemy health so you could just sort of shoot everything once and they died so you could get rid of the combat it was really next gen in terms of taking you know the concept of tomb raider and just blowing out the scale like the the idea most of these levels were like quite traditional tomb raider tombs but basically embedded in sort of semi little small sort of sandboxes so the opening level to this is diving down in the mediterranean from your boat and you just dive and dive and dive and this huge um, submerged temple like emerges from the murk and you're like wow i can do like any of this this isn't faked it's not like a scripted sequence like this is just a huge space um later on there are temples so big that you have like a motorbike because you need to drive around on you need to ride around on a motorbike to get to you know trigger certain things to like open a huge temple in the middle i i love you know i I love games about excavating like these these ancient spaces and activating machines and then it all unfolds and there's like a second layer to it i mean that, that that really uh that's really my cup of tea and this is just the best version of that and you know i i really liked the rebooted trilogy but they were just never platforming games. They just weren't interested in playing platform games. They were action games with some light puzzling, um, auto-platforming. Like, you just don't do much tomb raiding in them. There's some scenes in Uncharted, which I feel, like, capture the scale, but in a very, like, handheld way. You know, they're, they're very... You know, they're, they're intensely linear. It never just leaves you to really struggle. In fact, the, the few levels in Uncharted that really click with me are closer to under, underworld levels, you know, like that tropical island in Uncharted 4 you know, 
where you're just kind of left to your own devices. I thought this is just a, this is an amazing, amazing game, and I know it's like I know a couple of people who hold it in like incredibly high regard, and I think it's a real shame that they sort of shied away from this direction from the series. Um, yeah, I feel like this game really lost out due to the fact that there was an absolute avalanche of games at the end of 2008. And yeah. this just felt like it got pushed to the bottom of the pile because it was, I, I guess it felt more sort of familiar and it was less splashy. Like I remember when they demoed the game to us, like the stuff they showed off was things like Lara's hand animations and grabbing individual like blocks and stuff like that. And they did show us the level with the Kraken. There's a Kraken in this game, right? Yeah, that's that's like the second bit of the yeah, that's like the second level. Yeah, so I didn't actually like I didn't actually play it properly, but it did feel like this just didn't get the attention it deserved for whatever reason. Yeah, there's there's just so many there's so many moments in this like I'll I'll never forget. And I remember going over to do a press trip for the second Tomb Raider reboot. Is that Rise of the Tomb Raider? Hmm. And you know we we did all the Rise of the Tomb Raider stuff, and then I was talking to the like the the guy who was basically like the lead creative dude on on Underworld as well and I was just you know I was talking about that tomb stuff there and maybe this is just my read on the situation in the whole day that was the one bit he really lit up on where he was just like oh yeah we were you know talking about like some of the platforming gauntlets in it and I don't know part of me felt this is what this studio really should have been doing you know you actually like Crystal Dynamics knew they were onto a good thing with Underworld and, you know, they rebooted it and it's critically acclaimed and it's loved now and that's fair enough. But I think there's a there's a bit of them that just also just wants to get back to, like, quite hardcore kind of Prince of Persia-y proper platforming. Yeah, I wonder if, like, um, the sort of environment we're in now of, um, you know, uh, some more complicated games being popular would it, will encourage them with their inevitable next Tomb Raider reboot to go back to this a little bit more mm. maybe i think like the the thing they ended up doing was making it a bit more uncharted in terms of it being cinematic and stuff and i think that that's maybe the element this lacked that made it a bit more commercially sort of successful it yeah. Just, yeah that's the thing like yeah in light of like the buzz around uncharted this probably seemed a lot less sexy and, and a little bit old-fashioned it was still like old lara and I think Lara Croft has a bit of baggage. You know, she feels, like, quite outdated at this point. I didn't care for the story of this or anything. I'm not bothered about Lara Croft as a character. She's just someone who gets you into, like, amazing temples. But if you like Tomb Raiding, this is this is the, this is the game with the Tomb Raiding, I think. My number three, Matthew, is Mirror's Edge. Not expecting this Ooh. to be on your list. It is not. Yeah, so Mirror's Edge, first-person platforming game from DICE the makers of Battlefield. Dead Space was one of the big original games that EA made this year and Mirror's Edge was the other one. They made a big deal about them. Neither of them seemed to sell that well, which is kind of a shame. I guess Dead Space did better than Mirror's Edge did though. So the thing this game does perfectly is it's like a kind of like a parkour style game. You're running through this dystopian city and um, jumping between rooftops and uh, swinging on kind of like um, zip lines and uh, sort of like doing these sort of rolls to have safe landings and kicking down doors and all this stuff the levels are mostly linear in this one it's kind of a game of um figuring out how to optimally get to the location you want to be um without kind of like injuring yourself or like losing momentum um mm. it's a really sort of like but it was really bold and different for the time there was nothing else like it the color palette is very sort of stark it's a lot of like um white contrasted with bright primary colors um mm. A really interesting sort of like take on things. It would um, 
the game you can turn this off but the game would like highlight objects in red to tell you where to go um if mm. you were if you were lost and um i really like that as a kind of like aesthetic sort of style um they put loads of effort into the audio as well of making you sound um your your character she just feels like a real you're playing a real person albeit a much more athletic version than um yourself um <laughs> yeah i can't even climb up a ladder yeah i mean like um, in real life <laughs> I, I would um if i had to jog for five seconds i'd be done do you know what i mean um <laughs> but like uh yeah it's um it did actually like reprogram my brain this game to like when i was walking through Bournemouth town center i would start seeing like bits of buildings and thought oh yeah like um this is a mirror's edge level you climb up there and then you swing and you do this and that was how i knew i played it too much i was i definitely like went to bat for this game i I bought it at full price. Um, I didn't get a free copy of it or anything like that. As part of the job, I bought it and I played it like three times in a row. I played it in hard. I played it without using guns. I kind of did most of the achievements. Uh, I like the um, the time trial rooms they added to um, the game later on, which were set in these quite abstract kind of um, spaces. Very bizarre sort of like looking locations. Just thought Mirror's Edge was really special. I, just, I actually just completed it again um, recently. I think it's dated in some ways. I think like... Sometimes it's a bit too hard to figure out where you're supposed to be going or what you're supposed to be doing. Mm. And that's like a flaw of the game. And I actually do think that Catalyst, the one they released, is a better version of this, even though people disagree on that. But I think that actually I think it's a um, pretty solid Catalyst minus a couple of um, mandatory combat sequences. What did you make of this mm. one, Matthew? Did you play it at the time? Uh, I played a little bit. I just want to say that you've now raised the potential idea in my head of Mirror's Edge set in Bournemouth, which is exciting. <laughs> Um, Wouldn't have done as well, I don't think. Um, <laughs> no. Everyone's like, wow, this is so brutalist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there's, a, there's only like three tall buildings. and then, There's uh, three tall buildings. It's just you jumping over the heads of like old geezers on the beach. <laughs> um, um, <laughs> delivering fish and chips. Yeah, I I kind of... I, I never... I actually never played through the whole thing of this. I got, I think I got frustrated and gave up on it. I found like the potential of it, the idea of it was absolutely amazing. I was super into it. I loved the idea of this sort of like navigational parkour led, you know, gameplay. Um, I remember always thinking, wow, I'd so much, I wish this game was like open world, uh, which is funny because then when they did that, I didn't really like it. <laughs> um, like it turns out, I don't know what's best. Um, <laughs> Uh, I found it like I felt like I was trying to enact a series of hidden moves like it like it wanted me to do something very specific to survive in Mirror's Edge 1 like I felt like they were more like solutions rather than I had this move set that I could use in all these interesting ways so a lot of it was just me dying over and over again and going until I until I got what what until I got what I felt was the the secret solution but like I said, I don't think I played enough of this to like ever get get my head around it and see if there was more to it. You know, a stylish thing. I'm really glad it exists just because it's such a you know distinct artistic thing, especially in in like AAA sort of space. But um, yeah, just a, a bit too frustrating for my meat fingers. I think there's still a version of this game that could be made that would be like better than the two attempts they've done so far in terms of like yeah. being intuitive and how it feels and stuff. Maybe I should play I'm... that Ghost Runner game that does the similar things. But um... yeah, that that was good though. Even that like had the frustrate. You know, I just don't like dying over and over again and thinking, oh man, like I get all the basics of this. I just didn't. I didn't do the moves exactly as you wanted. It's a little too kind of prescribed when, you know, the fantasy of that world is like, I want to be free. I just want to run across these rooftops. And it's like, yeah, in a very specific route, which, yeah, sort of ran counter to the idea. Um, Weirdly, like Mirror's Edge is always the game that appears 
when EA are having their wave of creativity. <laughs> like it marked the first one, then Catalyst was there with the second. Um, so maybe it will come back. Yeah. It, it, it's like when when they've got that creative itch, that's when Mirror's Edge gets another go. In an age of uh, Game Pass, maybe it makes more sense. Maybe people um, play it more. But um, yeah, it doesn't feel like either of them sold that well. But no, I, I love this first one. And I, I, did, I did still enjoy it on a replay. Yeah, just amazing that a publisher made this at the time. But this has this has plenty of fans. This game it's far from forgotten. So, mm. what's your uh, number two, Matthew? My number two is GTA Four. That's uh, higher on my list. Oh, yeah. Um, so uh, I guess we go to my number two is Fallout Three, which was low on your list, right? Uh, yeah, that was six on my list. Yeah. So yeah, Fallout Three. Um, do you want to do your piece on uh, on this yeah, game, Matthew? Yeah, I, I, like. I had a very intense but short love affair with Fallout 3 where I've, 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 I'll put my hand up. I've never actually finished it, um, but I played it loads. I, I think I even took some time off work because I, you know, I knew it was incoming and everyone was like, this is the shit. You are going to love this. Mm. And I think I played it for like five days straight and didn't rinse it didn't finish it. But the, the, the openness of the world just like blew my mind like the scale of it and the the exciting kind of potential of what was there i think the more i played it the like the the i i that's where i fell a little out of love with it like once once you've kind of got the the run of the place or at least the run of the abilities or you've kind of seen uh you know a lot of what it does like once or twice you kind of you sort of know what to expect a bit but i i still think like the initial like 20 hours or whatever in the wasteland uh, are, are very like profoundly entertaining experience um the freedom of building the characters the the excitement of not knowing what was going to be behind every door and i think that's what wears off the more you play it actually is that you begin to go oh it's this thing again or it's this room again or but before you kind of know how the world works it's it's pretty magical yeah i just love the tone and style of it i love the i love i really like the vat system um i love the because i was you know younger and and sillier i loved the bloody death perk or whatever it was that made everything explode into like a pile of eyeballs that really that really made me laugh again and again and again yeah i i like so like i said i I had a a kind of uh i think this is a game that makes an amazing first impression but maybe doesn't hold me for good where how does it feel for you yeah, so I think this was the like the last, the first and only time I've been like properly hit by a ton of bricks, like by how impressive Bethesda's world design is. Just because when you leave that vault, it makes such a great impression on you in terms mm. of like how detailed it looks and stuff like that. It's a true sort of, you know, obviously Oblivion did this first, but I think this is just way more impressive um, as a kind of feat of world building. Um, or I mm. should say that I'm more into like sci-fi than I am fantasy. So that's. That's that's definitely my vibe. I didn't I didn't really click with Oblivion. Yeah, so I think that like um, prophecies and um, mages and all that stuff are not that interesting to me. But uh, you know, being someone who like uh, you know escaped captivity and is going into a world that's been destroyed by nuclear bombs, that's just much more my sort of vibe, I guess. Um, just really, um, really just love the storytelling in this. I thought the main quest was really good. I like I like how it kind of rattles through the early days of your life and then when you leave and stuff like that and how how if you behave badly over time and you later meet your dad again he'll like tell you I heard that you did I heard that you set off a bomb in Megaton and all this stuff and guilts you about it <laughs> because it's the voice of Liam Neeson you genuinely feel bad um, 
Yeah, I loved all of that. Really loved the side quest design as well. Um, there's a bunch of side quests in this that look great. Everyone remembers the uh, mega, uh, Megaton one, whether you set the bomb off or not, or whether you'll let the ghouls into Tenpenny Tower and then like um, basically watch all the people there get killed. Like, There's a really nice um, bunch of side quests that don't end in loads of different ways. There aren't loads of permutations. I know that's why some people like New Vegas more, because it's a bit more like... Um, you just you basically can just knock down all these dominoes and see what actually happens, and um, you mm. might be surprised by the result. This is a bit more linear, but really memorable kind of like like episodic TV show style side quests. Like um, there's a quest called the Replicated Man, I think it is, where you are looking for basically like an AI, like a ro- like an android who escaped his master, and um, you kind of go on this like long quest and um, to find out what happened, and then the the androids like. Um, had been sort of uh, basically like reprogrammed and all the memories had been pushed down and he'd like started living this new life and you kind of like follow the trail until you realize that um the ai was actually like a security guard right near the start of where you began the quest and it's a really really nice um like Uh. really kind of self good self-contained tv show style story i think that's what these quests do really well or really simple things like um retrieving an instrument for an old woman that she'd lost and stuff like that like Really, really memorable scripted side quests. Um, that combined with the world design, just really loved it. Just like, yeah, just an amazing world to explore, not knowing what's over the horizon. It really does that better than like almost any open world game does. Yeah, yeah, it is quite. Yeah, I, I, I probably sounded cooler on it that, than I actually am. I just, you know, I think maybe like there's so many games that kind of came after that sort of like take from it or build on it, or they themselves, you know, having played you know, New Vegas and Fallout 4 and 76 and uh, the Outer Wilds, um, Outer Worlds, sorry. That's, a lot of this stuff feels quite tropey now and, and maybe it's a little hard to divorce the kind of tropes that, that these ideas developed into from like the, the like the original material, hmm. you know, but playing it at the time, yeah, was, was, was properly amazing. So many good stuff. I mean, you're right about the, I'd, you know, I always sort of forget like the, the, the kind of weirdness that happens in the other vaults and the tranquility lane. I mean, that's just an absolute killer scene. Yeah, a lot to, a lot to love in this. And um, definitely, like, I'm way more of a Fallout person than I am an Elder Scrolls, for sure, which helps. Mm. Um, and I don't really have much of a past with the series as well. So, you know, I, I know some people are quite uh, slightly down on three out of some kind of, like, difference in tone or the subtleties of the thing, but I don't really have that, so... No, same. I feel like um, I, I, I'm just desperate for it. I'd love an open world game to make me feel the way this did again, but I just I don't know if it will ever happen. It just felt like such a kind of defining HD era game. Um, maybe, but maybe that's the thing. Maybe like it can only happen once because that's you know my my general feeling with this is like it's a game that kind of made a big impact and then faded for me over time. You know, maybe that's just you know you only have one of those you can only have that moment once yeah you, you, might, you may well be right about that yeah that's um an interesting point so we've reached your number one right matthew uh yeah my number one is fable two nice um talk um, me through it yeah a huge heart choice and it actually pairs well with what i was just saying about fallout fallout 3 and elder scrolls i am not a big fan of like high fantasy and for me uh, fable series and fable 2 which is which is where i really got into it um kind of like solves a lot of problems of like fancy rpgs in that it cuts out the kind of very highfalutin stuff which i have no interest in i don't want to read 
like literal books worth of shit in Elder Scrolls. <laughs> you know, in Fable, you'll maybe get six or seven lines of lore max, and it's funny, and it's making fun of the lore, and, you know, there's so much less of it throughout the world. It's an RPG for people who don't have time to play RPGs. Um, this is often sort of mistaken as it being like a simple RPG or like too streamlined, but I think it delivers everything you want. It delivers like the world, you know, it has enough scale to it and enough beauty to it that it kind of, I, you know, it you know speaks to me as a, as a big piece of, of escapism. Um, you meet characters who make quite a good impact quite fast. They're not overwritten. Um, everything's done with good humour. It takes as its base folklore and fairy tale rather than than like hardcore fantasy so everything's sort of filtered through this lens of sort of slight accessibility and that doesn't mean it's like child friendly it just means the way everyone comprehends this world is a lot simpler you know everyone sees it in this this quite kind of charming down-to-earth manner where you know in Elder Scrolls everyone just speaks in great big blocks full of like you know lingo that you don't understand and like weird terminology and like everyone's tuned into the law here it's just a load of bumpkins who don't really give a shit and i i really like that that really speaks to me um it's like a rare role playing game where it really feels like you do play a role like you you take a character and you play up to it it's kind of like role playing in the kind of sense of like dress up you know, it's more about like building, you know, clothes don't really have any vital stats attached to them. So you can kind of wear whatever you want. The game rates your behavior and your character morphs based on that behavior. So like if you're really, if you eat loads of food, you get really fat and people think you're ugly, which maybe is a bit harsh, a bit fat shamey, but whatever. I don't mind as, as a large man. And, you know, which of the combat disciplines you tap into changes how you look and how your character changes. Um, and this, to me, just felt like a very, a very like, hands-on role-playing system, one where, like, every decision I made actually was reflected in my character, which is the most important thing. You know, like, I never really used magic in this game because I didn't like the magical scarring that appears on the characters. Like, even though it was, you know, made the game maybe a bit harder, I stuck pretty much to, like, ranged weapons because that makes you quite tall and thin, which is how I wanted my character to be. Um, So you make these, like, gameplay decisions based on, like, what you want to get out the other end. One failing of the game is it maybe could be a bit more explicit in how some of that stuff behaves. You know, these aren't necessarily decisions people will make. Like, people wade in and just do everything because they maybe don't understand the relationship between their actions and their and the way they look and by the end of it i just felt like i had this character who i'd really sculpted and really belonged to me was really mine and there are a couple of quests where you make decisions where uh oh, there's one specific quest with um you basically are you're basically asked to sacrifice someone else or to sacrifice uh like your looks uh which is i still think to this day probably like like one of the most like potent choices I've ever made in a game because it took something that mattered in the context of the game rather than some grand moral quandary and it it kind of put that in, you know in a spotlight and it kind of really understood like what you value as a player is actually going to probably carry a bit more weight in decision making than what your moral stance on a decision is you know like you know choose between these two characters i don't really have any skin in the game between two ai lives i mean that doesn't really mean anything but this game yeah i just thought it had some a few moments where it kind of uh it understood sort of the selfishness of 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 kind of how you play games and went 
well, do this, you know, do this bad thing or I'm going to do something kind of that's regressive to your character. Uh, I thought that was a really interesting take on that decision making. Probably the closest Molyneux come to really tapping into that kind of killer decision making, you know, which is, you know, he it seemed to be like his holy grail in this period. Yeah. Um, I mean, I understand that, like, there's a bunch of key, like, lion-haired devs who shaped, you know, the direction of this game. Like, um, obviously, like, Def- use becomes such a divisive kind of figure. But, like, yeah. I just, I kind of could never quite tell just how hands-on he was versus some of the other stuff on these games. It's hard and it's a bit murky. I mean, he's an amazing salesman and he definitely put himself at the head of a lot of this stuff and he can talk it up. I think, I don't know, I, I like... Definitely what interests him in, like, what, when he was talking about it became, like, more prevalent as the series went on. And I think, you know, I, th- I think Fable 1 felt more like the work of the people who devised it, where he sort of came into it and kind of, you know, brought it to, you know, kind of brought it to fruition. Uh, I think Fable 3 is, like, uh, like the influence of Molyneux, like, very keenly felt, and it's why it's the weaker game. You know, it's a game which is, like, Fable 3 is sort of built around... It's basically a whole game that's setting up, like, five or six very hard decisions, but it basically sacrifices the rest of the game and basically bets big that those decisions are going to be absolute killers, Mm. where Fable 2 is much more balanced. Like, it just works. It's a lot more enjoyable in the minute-to-minute, and it has a couple of moments where it really puts everything on the line for you, which I think are very, very effective. Um, But those aside, it's just a fun fantasy adventure that isn't, like, weighted down with just all the, the, the... the the fat of like an elder scrolls which for someone like me who really bounces off that it was just perfect and it just it's just really stuck with me as like a you know it was one of my favorite games on 360 um i, I remember I, I reviewed this for xbox world 360 came out you know in the run-up to a little autumn in the run-up to christmas it's an amazing like autumn winter game mm. a very like frosty sort of fairy tale kind of oh i'm gonna tell you a story in a dark night kind of vibe yeah, I, I really, really rate this game. I replayed really it recently, and, you know, it's a little shonky technically, but I th- I still think the magic's there. Yeah, very well said, Matthew. Um, I think that this is the most complete feeling of the Fable games by far. Uh, it's, yeah, like, um, I think that the, the moment that sticks with me the most, like, I guess this is a spoiler, but I can't imagine that it matters now this many years down the line, but are you being taken to that island as a prisoner? And then yeah. coming back, and if you had kids, your kids are grown up, and that was just a really really great bit of storytelling um mm. and again like um i think that what's sort of um good about the tone of this game is how it will just suddenly like twist in a really dark way um darker than you might expect from the other the tone of the game otherwise because it does yeah. have this kind of like jaunty sort of like british vibe but does it in a way that's not sort of like um odious and just awful in a i i see it i see like that kind of like Pratchett style thing done badly so many in so many other places that it really turns me off. Um, or like mm. or like Terry Gilliam esque thing, you know. Like it just it doesn't always work for me. But um, here I think it works perfectly. I actually think like the only sadness with Fable for me as a series is that it did go away. Like I, I don't think Microsoft ever should have let it go away. Uh, obviously, we've reached this point now where someone else is making one, which is good, but. This is still the best one, but like you say, it's dated. It's quite a blurry game. It's a weirdly blurry... Um... Yeah, it's very smeary, like Vaseline. I think also, I mean, the, the Fable games, they always chop their world up into like quite small little chunks. So there's lots of like loading transitions. Like, 
I I really hope that the Fable Four they're making has like a scale, like has a scale to it and feels a bit more like a open world, but kind of keeps the tone of the older games. You know, it, it could be very easy to fall into the trap of making something a bit more kind of Elder Scrollsy, but there is a distinct there is a distinct tone, and it's something to do with the scale. It's like the, it's the, it is the difference between a you know a bedtime story and like reading Lord of the Rings. And that distinction has to be upheld. Yeah, I think so. I don't think that I don't think it'll go away just because um, it seems like they picked playground very specifically because it feels like they understood what the vibe of it is. They've obviously picked a, you know, one of the few like massive UK studios to um, yeah. to make it happen, which is great. Um, I've 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 got I've got faith. I think I think they're still like early days, but I've I've got high hopes for it. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, great choice. Uh, no, I love I love this game. Loads of affection for it. You can also shit your pants in it, which is hilarious. And it has the most um, broken, like, property economy system, like, ever. Um, just, like, <laughs> buying every single building in the game. And it's, like, it makes no sense at all. But it's but that's, um, yeah. that's the mad thing about Fable 3. What everyone forgets about Fable 3, it's the only way to, like, win as a good person and, like, maintain, like, only make good decisions is to become basically, like... Um, like the ultimate landlord you basically have to own every property and make so much money that you can make selfless decisions because you've got enough money to power like afford this this huge war at the end of the game and so like in the modern day where landlords are so looked down on this it's just it's just hilarious to play this game where like literally a landlord stops the apocalypse (laughs) through rent (laughs) <laughs> yeah that's uh that's very true i still have affection for that game though and um I, th- I think it will probably come up when we reach that year but uh yeah, yeah good stuff so we're on my number one matthew right grand theft auto 4 as i'm sure people deduced from um your earlier suggestion <laughs> so yeah. um i had loads of detailed thoughts that i wrote down on my ipad which is now powered down that's fine because i i i remember my take on this very well so this was definitely you want to speak from the heart. Exactly. This is like a just heart... like Nico Bellic. <laughs> this is a heart and a head choice. Um, I GTA Four was the defining game of um, of like covering PlayStation in this era. Like it was just. I mentioned that trip I went on where I saw it in New York. Like I was one of the first people to see it in action ever, and um, seeing it, like I said, it came out the first time I saw it was two and a half years after San Andreas came out, and the gap between those games is just ludicrous. The HD era of Rockstar Games is um, just like a, such a massive step up in um, uh, like the the way they use the technology. Like um, famously, I think GTA on PS2 had like quite pared down sprites, even for the time. Not sprites, sorry, pared down like you know poly, polygonal characters. There wasn't hmm. much definition to them, even though the um, sense of place of the worlds is really good. And then you get to um, GTA 4 and the characters are just so like vividly detailed really sort of stylized and you know the game's motion captured and all this stuff and the city San Andreas was obviously like huge like a massive like you know California basically with bits of Nevada in um with this game they just picked one city New York and they did it did it incredibly well with loads and loads of detail and it means that it doesn't have the same playground vibe as um the older GTA games which I think ended up being quite contentious for some people and it's part of the reason why GTA 5 ended up being like very much in the San Andreas spirit but I really love that they went with this cinematic story of a like a kind of war veteran immigrant who comes to the um 
US, uh, Serbian immigrant, uh, Nico Bellic, goes to work for his cousin Roman, thinks his life's going to improve, very quickly finds himself pulled into all sorts of criminal activity. It's a very sincere story for Rockstar um, itself, like um, quite a bold choice. It was um, when it was announced, it was given this very like serious kind of like this Philip Glass music and uh, monologuing. Mm. It was um, a bold choice by Rockstar to do that when previous GTA games, I think like um, uh, they really tapped into something with CJ. I think he was a very empathetic character with a good arc. But um, I think that this was like a step up in terms of cinematic ambition, making something a bit more like a Scorsese movie. And yeah, it meant it wasn't for everyone, but I just, I really, really loved the focus down on his story. I liked the fact they picked this one location and did it so, so well. This, it just, their version of New York is, it was like, just like a mind blowing amount of detail for the time. Just like astonishing. You could walk across it and just be dazzled by it, by the NPC details, Mm. by the individual buildings that they'd recreated. It just felt so much more like a real place than any of the PS2 GTAs did. And hmm. um, over time, Rockstar, I think, got... A, well, this is not true, because Red Dead happened. I think there's connective tissue between this game and Red Dead in terms of the, their storytelling, for sure. Um, and the, the kind of, like, the sort of things Rockstar was interested in at the time. GTA Five abandons this sincere approach. It's much more about um, wacky lads doing crimes. And <laughs> I think at the time, I found that refreshing. But in retrospect, I think that I've got a lot more personal affection for this approach to GTA. What do you think of this mm. one, Matthew? Yeah, I mean, the, the the kind of expectation around this was just mad because, you know, growing up in, in the late 90s, early noughties, you're just trained to know that, like, GTA was, like, where it was at. It was just the most important thing <laughs> in terms of games. Like, that, these were the games that would show you, you know, where games you know what what level games were operating at at any given time and the excitement of seeing that you know of seeing what this thing would, was going to be I and mean, it was just you know being on a nintendo mag you know you're out of the loop on it but even if you were on the mags you know rockstar is still like quite secretive you know and only limited people get to see this stuff and so that you know it was never just a game that was just you know oh here's a preview build in the office for example so it maintained this allure i remember building up to it just anyone who played it in the office just just like quizzing them like just tell me about it tell me about it like, tell me it's gonna be amazing i just want to know that it's this amazing thing and uh i remember playing it in someone's house like just before it came out and it was i i can remember just seeing it for like you know 15 20 minutes and being like no you know i, I i'm just gonna I, I can't see any more of it like this i have to play it for myself you know i can't spoil it this is gonna be like everything the level of detail the you know just how alive that world that is you know the like the physicality of it i remember being like mesmerized by that the fact that like when you walk down steps you connected with them all properly that uh, what physics is that is that euphoria that's right yeah i mean that the rag doll when you pushed people the way they like realistically like fell and tumbled just on that level you know Someone who grew up playing a lot of GTA mainly for going around causing trouble, it was so much more potent in this game because you could just, like, you know, push an old lady down a hill and she'd roll realistically (laughs) and you'd be like, that's amazing. That is next-gen pushing an old lady down a hill. Um, That is 100% what I want from GTA. 
it took like it actually took me like several years to get through it as like the story because I got so stuck on a few missions, you know, I think it never solved that difficulty spike problem that it had that in that there are just a couple of bits in this game which are like so tough and the checkpointing's rotten that you know as an actual single player game like you know i think maybe the, the dramatic arc of that character was slightly lost on me at the time but as a yeah just as as like the next gen version of of the playground and causing the kind of mischief that i like to cause which is basically just try and trigger as many police as possible and see if i could escape for as long as possible it still really ticked all those boxes you know everyone talks about it as this quite weighty thing and you're right too you know it's definitely a lot more adult a lot more sophisticated than before but i think it still holds up as a the kind of core idea of like here's a big place go and be naughty but just mixed with yeah so many subtle touches and Oh god, the comedy clubs! I can remember like reading about that. There's a absolutely, at the time, like phenomenal edge cover feature on GTA Four, where they basically sat down with the houses and they talked through like from GTA, you know, they talked through all the the kind of the, the the modern GTAs and did like a couple of pages on each and then like four pages on GTA Four, and it was just basically like this just a description of how dense the world was i can remember reading that stuff and thinking oh this can't all be true there's no way you can go to a comedy club and this ricky gervais that's mad um and then there he was i couldn't believe it and the weird you know oh just uh it had such a huge huge impact like just endlessly dazzling you know a game of just you know we always talk about like the small touches like a thousand small touches which you just couldn't believe they'd done but married to like that rock solid gta core uh yeah this was this is great stuff yeah i didn't want to kind of over egg the um dramatic side of it i think it's just that like um even the slight difference in tone makes a big difference um because yeah. uh when i was uh, playing a lot of gta online now you are endlessly called by like bellends who are basically trying to be like wise guys and be like, "Hey, what's going on? Where are you gonna come uh, get these cars for me and all this stuff?" And it's like, uh, "Hey, you know, <laughs> I was like, uh, hey, if you, you know, I, I'll uh, I'll have sex with your mum if you don't get this done and all this, all this kind of like really like blah 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 in your ear sort of dialogue." And I think there's something mm. to be said for like, I don't think Rockstar necessarily needs to go this dramatic again because it does. This game ends on like a dour note. However, however it finishes, it's got there's some choices in this game, um, mm. and that whatever decisions you make, Nico is kind of a doomed figure. That's like his arc in the game, and I don't mm. necessarily think Rockstar needs to do that again. But the kind of the idea that like GTA just has to be full of absolute shitheads is not something that appeals to me. I think that I like characters who you can who you can like, and I think that. Both this game and the DLC they would do for it later, which I'm sure will come up in a future episode, they um, they just really nailed what I wanted from GTA tonally. And you got that mm. kind of cheeky vibe from it, from the um, different characters in the game. Yes, they call you too often to hang out. But again, if you've played GTA Online, you are called by dickheads all the time. And like, um, I don't think this is any more egregious than they were. Um, mm. Yeah, just really loved it. Just a really... Oh, yeah, just so, so good. And I, I agree with you about the difficulty spikes. I played it a few years ago. Like, the shooting is quite dated. Um, GTA Five unquestionably has better shooting than this. But, yeah, what did a... You, um... Did you, re- you reviewed this one, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, if I was in a review session at an event and I'd got stuck on one of those difficulty spikes, I don't know what I would have done. I'd have been like, well, that's it. I'm just not seeing the end of this game. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't see the end of the game to complete it. I ran out of time. I got to... Right, right. 
Uh, so I know I know that some people at Future did complete it. Uh, I didn't complete it. I got to like the New Jersey area of the game, which is the, like the, the final third of it. Um, but to yeah. be honest, like I think playing it in a three day burst in like a dark room is not the way to play it anyway. Um, you really yeah. do want to savor this. And I I do know like quite a lot of people who have not finished this game and and don't love it. Um, it's an interesting one in that respect. <laughs> They definitely get better at mission design. I think GTA Five, like generally, the mission quality is 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 much higher. Um, like in terms of the variety and and just how they work and the accessibility of them. You know, I think GTA Four has got a few things that everyone remembers, but they they probably stand out because the rest of it isn't quite as strong. So, like you know, everyone always talks about like the the heat sort of like heist. Um, three four three leaf, leaf clover. Three leaf clover. Yeah. Three leaf clover. Yeah. Um, uh, but that's because it's like you know it's noticeably the best mission. Yes, There's... I really, li- I actually really, I really like the stuff with the the kind of the the sort of warring brothers where you had to kind of pick a side. And there's some, there's there is some, there are some quite like cool decisions in this game to be made. Yeah, I, the one between um, I think it's Dwayne and Playboy X is quite a good one. I think like um, you're encouraged to side with Dwayne, who's like a, an ex card who's a bit of a loser, and Playboy X is just a bit of a twat. Um, so you mm. kind of you you make a choice that is re- relatively easy there, but it's still quite hard to like. It's still not knowing those who are in the game, like being having that choice hit, hit on you for the first time is like quite daunting. It's and mm. and exciting. It it really was and. Um, GTA Five doesn't really have that. I think at the end you can pick which of the characters you keep alive by um, choosing a, a different ending, and that's that's mm. what happens. Like I think you can end the game by having like only one of them alive if you want to. But um, oh right, yeah. But there's a way to keep all three of them alive. Uh, mm. So yeah, it's um, yeah GTA Four. Just uh, really loved it. Defining game of my time, and um, loads of affection for it years later. So definitely, we did it, Matthew. That's the end of. The best games oh. of 2008. Uh, we've reached the three-hour mark on the recording. In the edit, I'm not sure it will come out that long, but Jesus, what a long podcast. Um, but it was fun. Well, it was a good year. Yeah, it was a good year. So many good games. Um, so, yes, we will do the best games of 2009 at some point in the future, probably closer towards the summer at this point, based on the um, episode plan that me and Matthew just uh, came up with recently. So, yes, thank you very much for listening. If you'd like to send us an email, you can get us at backpagegames at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at BackpagePod. If you'd like to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, if you listen on there, that'd be greatly appreciated. Anything you do like that helps us um, find an audience. We've had loads of really um, nice reviews from the listeners, so thank you so much for doing that. And um, you can find me on Twitter at Samuel W. Roberts. Matthew, where can they find you? I am Mr. Basil underscore Pesto. And uh, thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next Friday. Bye-bye.